Hey guys, welcome to Miles of the Merrimack. I'm Captain Chris here with Dandy Daddy. And today, guys, we really want to thank our guest tonight that came all the way from Gloucester, Massachusetts to talk to us uh, on a Monday night for the Sunday release here, uh, Mr. Matt Ayer and Ben Gahagan of the Division Marine Fisheries. Thank you for coming, guys. Hey, guys. Thank you for having us. Thanks for having us, guys. Yeah. Some of you guys remember Matt. He came on with us last year. We had a good conversation. Great guy, good friend. We've known him. How long have we known each other, man? Well, about I think, 10 years no, at least. No, let's see. Well, so when did you start working on the party boats? Oh, geez, that's right, because you were uh, so a surveyor. I, I started sampling party boats in 2005, so it might have been before you were a mate. but Yeah, so I think I started mating in 2008, okay. 2007, somewhere around that range. So I predate you riding those party boats. Yeah, yeah. I remember. I still remember that day we had you on, and we were up in the wheelhouse, and we're driving out, and uh, me and Gabe were messing with Bob, the captain, and we were like, so, Bob, you think we'll find that whale we harpooned earlier today? (laughs) (laughs) He's so serious, and luckily you were in the corner. You got the joke. (laughs) We would never do such a thing. (laughs) Never, never. But that was actually my first experience seeing people from the Division Division Marine Fisheries going to work and what you guys were doing at the back of the deck there all day, measuring the fish out and recording everything everything so that was pretty cool yeah continue to do that and you know i don't get out as much in the field anymore but it's coordination of those field samplers that are still carrying out that that part of the survey mrip survey gathering that headboat data which is really important it's the only way we get um release fish measurements and part of the recreational you know survey is having some of those released uh actual measurements in terms of release fish size to to use in management now, how often are you guys going on headboats to do that sort of thing? So that survey begins in April in Massachusetts. Uh, some states will sample a little bit earlier, but we don't begin uh, until wave two, which is and the second month of wave two, which is March and April. So in April, we get out. Um, and so that month, I think we have six or eight trips scheduled for the month of April. It tends to ramp up a little bit as the season gets a little busier. And so we'll do more trips in May, June, July, August. Um and that's throughout the state. So, you know, and actually early season April, I think we only have trips on the North Shore uh, in Gulf of Maine. Uh, there's not a lot of fishing going on until May, uh, south and south of the Cape or south south of the 42 uh, latitude. So we're not really seeing any activity on the headboats uh, until we get into May uh, south. Yeah. And you're going on everyone up and down the coast, correct? Yeah, so any headboat, which is a vessel that's you know can carry seven or more passengers and is an inspected vessel, uh, is eligible to carry uh, observers. And so uh, we would have you know we essentially put in the effort of those vessels in terms of how or the pressure, I guess, is the way we say it. But it's how active those vessels are on both weekdays and weekends, and that uh, helps to dictate how often that vessel can get drawn in a month. So you know the, the vessels that are going every day tend to get drawn more often, uh, you know, at times during the summer when boats down south might be doing two to three trips a day, they have a much uh, higher frequency and uh, therefore have a much uh, bigger chance of getting drawn and get drawn more than more than once often. So, um, yeah, it's uh, we end up on lots of different party boats. And uh, again, it's a subsample. We're not doing every trip, but it's a it's a subsample getting at what's what's being caught in that headboat fishery. Now, are you strictly doing that for cotton haddock, or do you include, uh, like, black sea bass and tog and those other fisheries? So, you know, up here in, in the Gulf of Maine, it's it's mostly, the headboat trips are mostly for um, cod and haddock, uh, or haddock, haddock, really haddock, yeah. and, and then cod a, a little bit. But uh, we do have some trips that, you know, there's some of the smaller boats will run mackerel trips, uh, 
you know, bluefish if there's bluefish around. And, and, and obviously, like historically, bluefish were a bigger head yep. boat trip. Um, and then there's striper trips. And we, we get on, you know, the Captain George out of the, out of the mouth of the Merrimack and, and do trips. Um, I, I think I did a Captain George trip last year, you know, drifting. You had drifting. a day I heard that day. Was that the good one? Was that you that was telling me? I, I, I can't remember. We had, <laughs> well, we had a, no, we didn't have a great day, but we had a, you know, there were a few fish caught and people were happy to be out. And, and it was, you know, again, there were fish caught with people. Everybody got to see a fish and a lot of kids. And that's always a great thing. Yeah. hundred percent. Well, I didn't realize that you were doing the whole spectrum of every fish. I thought it was just the bottom fish trips. Cause I don't think we ever, I ever did a bass one with you while you were out there. So that's pretty cool to know. Yeah. So it's really, you know, it's really all the head boats. And so, you know, um, some of my counterparts down South are coordinating headboat trips that ride, uh, more on the backside of the Cape and, uh, and down out of the South coast area. So those, those trips that target scup, black sea bass. There's not. There's some fluke trips, but more black sea bass and scup. Um, those trips are also sampled. And they won't. Again, they start. That season doesn't open till May, so they won't start doing those trips until May. But we are sampling those as well. Yeah, and that's the main way you guys probably get your data, right? Is directly from the fishermen. You know, trying to get as much as honest information from being out in the water. And it's really important. That's one of the things we're going to talk about today. We're hitting a lot of topics we got on our list. And one of the things seems to be just generating good data for yourselves, right? And whether it's NRIP data, the people you guys um, survey down at the docks, charter captain reports, commercial reports, I'm sure, you know, all of that gets fed into the system to try to figure out what's best for the fishery. Am I correct in that? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, you know, the the different pieces in terms of recreational fisheries, MRIP has a bunch of different pieces of the survey, right? There's the access point angler intercept survey, which is intercepting you know, private anglers, uh, private rental anglers, shore anglers, and charter boat uh, customers dockside, and that's getting at catch and participation. Um, that's that's what's called, like I said, APIS, or a, uh, Access Point Angler Intercept Survey. And then there's um, the headboat survey, which is a ride-along. So the only way we get the headboat data is to actually do the physical ride-alongs. Um, and then we're recording all the fish that get thrown back for a, a subsample of people on the boat. Um, and again, there we're, we're really just getting at catch and participation. And then the effort comes from a different piece of the survey, which is a male survey. Um, and that's directed by, um, both the saltwater licenses. So, you know, we sell, you know, up to in certain years has been over 200,000 permits or we issue over 200,000 permits. Um, but that helps direct the survey, uh, to Massachusetts uh, households that would get this, the effort survey, which is uh, essentially a mail survey where you contribute uh, information on your fishing effort. And that is then combined with that um, catch data to, to create our estimates, a recreational catch. Awesome. So that's kind of how it works behind the scenes, guys, you know, and getting that information in so these guys know what's going on is the best thing that we could do. And, you know, uh, and Ben, one of the reasons why I wanted you to come today, we met years ago, you came, we have a captain's association meeting. Um, and Ben came a few years ago, probably about seven years ago, it was before COVID, a couple of years yeah. before that. And he did a wonderful presentation on a striped bass migration study. Him and Matt have also done, have been working on another striped bass study. So we're going to talk about a few of those things today. Um, ben, I'm just going to let you take it from here. Do you want to yeah. tell us a little bit about it? Yeah, totally. I'll also say that a great uh, Matt, outside of doing all the MRIP stuff, he's our regional biologist for the North Shore. So you, that's why you know him, right? You guys yeah. talk to him mm -hmm. about that stuff, which is a great way for the division to get information 
about uh, all the fishing effort that's going on. Maybe things we're not kept capturing in some of these data surveys so that we can go out and investigate things. And that's, you know, what you get at when some of the research we're talking about now, where we can do supplementary research, get new data streams that help fill in where we don't just get these really kind of a coastwide effort surveys and, and everything else and all the catch. Sorry. No, no, it's when you turn your head, but it's I fine. know. Chris yeah. is going to just micromanage me. I need, I need to micromanage. I really want to look at me. It's okay. I do. I always want to look at you. It's fine. Um, so Matt and I work. I mean, you guys have been this close before, right? Yeah. Absolutely. Many, many times. Yeah. Um, we, we've hauled a lot of nets together. So yeah. close proximity. Um, yeah. So I, I'm a diagenist fish biology. This is my day job at the division. So this is kind of getting into my busy season. Uh, and so I work with River Herring, Shad. We, if you want to talk about some of that today, we can talk about some of that today. I would love to talk about that today. Awesome. Yeah, I saw you guys had your River Herring, Parker River video, right, uh, exit video of the fish coming out. I was like, ah, I know where that is. Oh, yeah, it's the yeah. best. It's a pilgrimage every year. <laughs> yeah. You know, just get the juices flowing. Uh, yeah, man, it's great to see all those fish. Um, so, yeah, I'm a big River Herring nerd, uh, and it's been the passion, really, of my last 15 years is working with River Herring. Um, but I also do a bunch of research on striped bass, I've done bluefin tuna research in the past. I like to fish for all these things. And so it's fun to go out and do all those things and focus on those. But yeah, we can talk a little bit about striped bass. Do you want to talk, start with the migration stuff? Yeah, start with the migration stuff, the stuff that you showed us at the uh, the captain's meeting. Because I was just like, I thought it was really cool. You had some really cool points there, yeah. things that you found out that were very, very interesting. Yeah, it was really neat. I mean, of course, the world changes on you, and we'll get into that. But we um, so that really came out of a study that we did or well, it came out of discussions previously to my getting to the division in 2012, I was working for a researcher that was studying straight bass in the Hudson River, and I had done this acoustic telemetry study. So in acoustic telemetry, we're putting a tag on or in a fish that sets out a signal. You can set it however long you want to be. The interval typically is somewhere around 60 to 90, every 60 to 90 seconds. It sets out a ping. And if you're close enough to a receiver, in which the size that we use on straight bass is anywhere from like, you know, quarter of a mile to two thirds of a mile, maybe within that receiver, the receiver records it and says, okay, this fish, which has each tag has a unique number. You can say this tag was here at this time. We have to go out and download the receivers, but it's great because all of a sudden you know where fish are all the time. So I was doing that on fish that we tagged in the Hudson River. Of course, all our fish after being in the Hudson River, or a lot of them, if they didn't stay in the Hudson, they weren't resident fish. They were coming up to Massachusetts. So I had been talking to all the people in Massachusetts already when I was doing this Hudson trip. Now I'm working with them. They had tagged fish out on uh, on Stellwagen, Matt had been part of that study, helping tag fish on Stellwagen. They were all going down into the Hudson, they were going to Chesapeake Bay. So we had all these similar observations of each other's fish crossing paths on all our receivers and talking about it. So we started talking about, uh, and these were really coming down into like, you know, late 2000s, uh, early teens, when that Chatham fishery, especially the Cape Cod commercial fishery, and recreational fishery was just very concentrated in space and time. Yep. You know, um, and we were really interested to know if there was effects going back to spawning populations or just fishing in a general area based upon that. If you were like that really intense effort in space and time was having a, a coastwide effect because the thing about Massachusetts and straight bass, we all love straight bass in Massachusetts, right? And it's cool, but because everybody in Massachusetts cares about straight bass, fishes so hard on straight bass. You guys is probably the backbone of both of your guys' businesses, right? Yep. Yep. And I mean, and it's just the, that species that everybody fishes on. We have more effort. Typically, we're the first or second state coastwide from all the survey work that Matt's involved with and was talking about in number of trips, like angling effort, then also in the number of fish caught 
you know, whether that's released or harvested. So not only is it a really big part of our state, and also it's like it's probably estimates is $600 million a year in economic activity when you think of all the gas, hotels, tackle shops. Charter business. Charter business, shops, guys. Yep, food, all that stuff. Yeah, food. Restaurants, people yeah. go out to eat. It's somewhere around $600 million a year in, the, in Massachusetts. So it's a big deal. Um, big, really big deal for Massachusetts. And, but it's also a big deal coast-wide because all these fish from all the different spawning populations are coming up to Massachusetts. And they're under a lot of pressure in Massachusetts where you, there's just so much effort and so much harvest. And so much catch and release, which is we can talk about later, goes to post-release mortality. That Mass- what happens in Massachusetts actually affects the entire coast. Mm-hmm. So it was important for us to look at straight bass and what was going on there. Um, <laughs> yeah, all right. I'm sorry. I'm getting comfortable and leaning back. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, so it was really just hallway conversations that we started the idea of doing this study. Um, and... Thankfully, our supervisors really bought into it and the division funded it. This was something that was largely uh, funded out of Sportfish Restoration Grant money. Do you guys know how that works? No, not at all. All right, so it's pretty cool. It's uh, it's basically an excise tax that manufacturers of, of rods, reels, fishing tackle have to pay into a government fund. I think marine fuel also goes into it. Oh, good. Um, We're funding it pretty well then. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but here's the good part. Here's the good part is that it goes back to the states to do this kind of work, right? Okay. So um, it's the same thing. As, uh, there's a wildlife restoration grant program that's modeled after, and it's been very successful. And so this money comes back to the states based on a formula, which includes license sales. So and then so it was paid for in, lar- in large part by that, but also by recreational license sales. So this is an example of something where like, you know, for those of us, you guys are probably old enough to remember not having to have a license. Yep. Yeah. And uh, but the Institute of License, I think it's fairly priced and it's going to doing work like this. It pays my salary, it helped pay for the tags, it pays for this kind of work. Um, so we did our, our supervisors basically said, we want we think this is a really good idea. This is what we want to do. So what we did is that we uh, created acoustic gates across Boston Harbor. We had another gate going out about 10 miles off of Cape Ann. Mm hmm. Uh, we have a one that goes off about four miles off of, uh, basically off of, uh, not Nosset, um, not Woods End either. Pickett Hill? Yeah, thank you, Pickett Hill. No, well, Pickett Hill, a little further yeah. down, yeah, Pickett Hill, brain farting. Um, we have the canal gated off, and all the white shark receivers that Greg Scomal has down the south shore and then around Cape Cod. Oh, so those pick it up as well, too? Oh, yeah. See, oh, that's, that's cool. That's a really that's cool, great. That's yeah. the coolest thing about this technology is everybody's on the same wagon with the technology. Mm-hmm. So all the receivers uh, and all the tags show up, and then we have a big network where at this point, most people are part of this network where we all you do is send in the files from the receivers, and then every six months you get an email being like, here's all your detections from, you know, basically from Florida through Nova Scotia. Wow, that's awesome. I yeah. didn't realize you had all that extra help. All yeah. the other things all kind of go into the same place. Yeah, it's, that's really, neat. it's collaborative that way. That's so. definitely very helpful. Yeah, uh, yeah, no, it's really helpful. <laughs> so, I mean, so we did that. And we also uh, gated off Vineyard Sound and Buzzards Bay. And then we went out and we tagged fish over two years. We tagged seventy-five, at least 75 fish in Boston Harbor uh, on the backside of Cape Cod and then in Buzzards Bay and Vineyard Sound. And we wanted to see how fishing mortality and pressure changed on these fish, depending on what population they were coming from in the spring. So where from down south were they coming from or where maybe where they had to spend their springs and doing their spawning migration, how much pressure was there? Because there's different regulations in all those water bodies on what you can do with those fish, how they got back to Massachusetts, where their migration route was, and then where they spent their summer in Massachusetts. Um, 
and it was really cool. So we ran that. We ran all those receivers. And like I said, there's like this big network. So it's it's great. I can I'll give you the the file so you can show it on your on the video of this. Yeah, we'll throw is, it on there. Yeah, sure. yeah. Is it like so instead of having like that on the water like heat map of like or like your classic arrows, like it's spring, they're going here, yeah, it's falling yeah, right here. Yeah. Like I have like an animation of our fish going and just we at a weekly time step and it's like boop 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 like going up all the rivers, coming back out, going to Massachusetts, going back down the coast over like yes. two years. <laughs> it's like so cool to be like, this is it. This yeah, is the fish and, here to me. I'm gonna love yeah, this. Yeah, okay. <laughs> and not to interrupt, but the network is not, you know, like Ben said, not just our state, but all these other states are using yeah. the same technology. Yeah. So it's you know you may, we maintain an array in Massachusetts, and then the other states are maintaining their array. And so, as their fish move up, we get data for their fish. And so, it's this it's this it's great like teamwork. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it's you know, so someone tagging sturgeon using the same technology, they're giving you know they have receivers out, and so the data that they're gathering from your fish because your fish end up pinging on their receivers, you get. And so, it's it's great. oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. It yeah. definitely cuts down the guessing game where you get to put all your receivers a little, little bit. You well, know what and, I mean? And cost. The receivers cost, aren't cheap. Obviously, so if, yeah. you know, if you're sharing some of that load, now yeah. you're now you're all kind of you know, and there's been collaborations that have come out of this, and yeah. so it's yeah. it's a it's been a great program, I think, for everybody. Yeah, that was one of the big things about doing the study when we did it is uh, then we you know we're Massachusetts is so dialed in because we run a r- big array every year. We knew all know all the players, so we knew that there was going to be really good coverage. Well, we were doing this study. Um, in the Hudson River, in the Delaware River, in Delaware Bay, and in the Chesapeake Bay, um, especially the Navy ran for five years a amazing array off the mouth of the bay, trying to figure out if all their naval stuff coming into Southern Virginia was affecting marine life. Oh, cool. So they had this huge array right off the mouth of Chesapeake Bay that was a kind of a once in a lifetime opportunity to like, see the fish down there off of Cape Henry doing all their thing in the winter coming in and out. So it was, it was just, we we knew what was going to be out in the ocean while we were doing this study. We we're like, this is the time to do it. Yeah. So it was cool. It was lined up cool. really well, right? It did. Yeah. It did. So it was really nice. Um, we, so yeah, we ran this out until the end of 2019, December 2019. We ran these arrays every, basically get them in the water beginning of May, end of April, and then pull them out uh, November, December uh, across the, the state and coastal waters. And you did it for one year or did you do it for No, no, we did it. So we tagged fish in 2015 and 2016. And then we had, we ran the array every year through 2019. Oh, nice. So we have, for some of these fish, I'm still getting detections. They're right at the end of their tag life. They were seven year tags. Oh, wow. So I, just the other day I got detections for one one or two of the fish that are still running around. No shit. Yeah. That's really really cool. Yeah. So are they an insert tag? Yeah. So what we do is I thank God, I mean, straight bass or I've tagged river herring and and not river herring and shad, but straight bass are very hardy fish. Yeah. Um, and if you treat them nicely, they generally do well. So, yeah, so we put them in a live well after catching them, big live well, let them get you know, with flow through water, let them get kind of relaxed. And we would do a quick surgery. It's under two minutes, put them on a board, wet towel over their head, make a small incision in the cavity, in the chest cavity, just enough to get the tag in, put that tag in. Um, and then get like a disc mount, a disc tag. So it's like a disc with a long spaghetti tag, like everybody's used to seeing. Okay. Put that in the incision, then that disc holds it in, and then we'd sew it up. And then so that somebody caught the fish, they could read the tag. It had our phone number on it, said, you know, transmitter inside, please return. If you if you harvest fish, I'm trying to think of if I have a caught one that might have had that transmitter tag. Oh, I, I, I got know. a good story about that. All right, good. <laughs> well, we want to hear it. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, so we get these. Ta- so all the time we get people. They're like, oh, I caught your fish. Sometimes they cut off. You know, everybody's used to cutting off the Fish and Wildlife Service tags, and so sometimes yeah, they course. cut them off. 
And so now we have a fish swimming around with the transmitter inside still because people just wouldn't read the tag. And now they're swimming around with the transmitter inside, but no external tag in case somebody, re- you know, catches it again. So they never know. Um, we had, you know, people like break the tag in half to see what was inside and mail it back to us, you know, because it's just like this black cylinder. And they, uh, but once I got. So what color are the they're tags? They're black. They're black and they're probably as long as my index finger, about the same size as my index okay, finger. Okay. And the spaghetti tags are usually yellow, I believe, right? The they, ones they like can, the uh, those are the. Society those, does? Yeah, that's the literal society. Yeah. The U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service ones are a reddish pink. Okay. Yeah. I see yep. red, reddish and yellow. So yep. I haven't, I don't think I've seen a black one. So. Yeah, no, well, the, in, no, so the inside, yeah, the transmitter's right. black. Ours yeah. was dark red. The X, oh. the spaghetti tag was dark red. But um, you probably cut a few. <laughs> probably. <laughs> what, what? No, it's okay. It's like one day. So one day I come into the office and the guy who was uh, who was more of an office guy and was in charge of getting when people would call in these tags, they they call them in. Um, and he was the guy who was in charge of getting uh, you know, talking to people on the phone, putting them into our database. And so I get in and, and this guy's like, oh, we got another tag report. I was like, sweet. Where? He's like from Niantic, Connecticut, which is where I used to fish out of. I was like, no way, what boat? And, he's like, and he tells me the boat. I'm like, oh, my friend is a mate on that boat. We're getting that tag back. And these tags are like 300 bucks each. So I'm like, great, <laughs> we're going to get this tag back. We'll be able to put it back in another bass and get more data. <laughs> and so I call up my buddy and I'm like, hey, dude, did you catch a tag bass yesterday? He's like, yeah. I was like, what you, do you have my transmitter, right? He's like, what do you mean? I was, like, I was like, well, you caught one of our bass. And like, did you read the tags? He's like, no, I just cut it off and gave it to the guy and told him to call the number, filleted the fish, and threw it overboard. <laughs> <laughs> so the tag went back yeah, in. The tag went right so in. it's a known mortality. No yeah. mortality. Yeah. Yeah. It, went, it went right into Niantic Harbor. I could probably, oh, I could probably snorkel and go pick it up. If yeah, I it's probably out there somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> no, so it was just, oh, yeah. No, it was so. Yeah, that was that was great. So, it, if there's a lesson to be learned, read the tags. Read the tags. <laughs> read the tags. <laughs> if you can read them, I mean, they, they're very oh, tough. Yeah. They're they, tough to you read. Know, you got to clean them off, and and then yeah. you can sometimes read them. So yeah. it's yeah. it's not a it's not perfect, but absolutely, we got some pictures along with some of our tag returns, and there was a lot of biofouling on them and everything. Oh yeah, else. They yeah, get, they're unbelievable. When yeah, they grow. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so so it was really cool. So we we did see a, you know roughly thirty ish 30 percent ish of our fish disappear year on year yeah so you know we started out with 250 fish more or less and that number dwindled pretty quickly um but it was great to be able to follow those fish year to year i'm kind of moving into the final analysis portion um but the fidelity of these fish to a general areas within massachusetts was i think is what you're probably thinking it was like really amazing to see yeah it was crazy it um, was very eye-opening that, yeah that's what we found was that uh there were fish you know so if we we ran the i've run the analysis a couple different ways and i'm going to keep on tweaking it but the basic what i found was that if i took the shoreline and kind of said all right so we tagged in these very discrete areas um but we have receiver coverage over a greater area like so we tagged inside boston harbor but we have a chain of receivers, like a string of pearls going from the Cape Cod Canal, you know, between Greg's stuff and our stuff, pretty much all the way up past Boston Harbor into Salem Sound. Then we had the Cape Ann Gate. There's receivers for sturgeons in the Merrimack. They're in the Piscataqua. There's a couple other receivers around. Like, so we said, okay, these Boston Harbor fish are part of this, like, northern Massachusetts at summer aggregation. And, and uh, that went all the way down to the canal. And then we said, okay, if, if fish are on either in Cape Cod Bay or on the backside of Cape Cod, and we tagged just on the backside of Cape Cod because that's where the fish were at the time. We said, those are Cape Cod fish. And then there's the Buzzards Bay and Vineyard Soundfish. And what we found over having, you know, four years of data on these fish is that 90% of those fish, if, they, if we had a full four years of data on them, stayed within that same summer aggregation area. Wow. 
and only ten wow. percent of them like ever flipped for a summer. No kidding. Yeah, they they just do that. So these things are going basically to the same spot creatures year after have year. There there are creatures. Yeah, I mean, so like that's like the big picture. They might move around some. Um, but yeah, very much creatures of habit. There, and I think that some of the, you talk to some of the littoral society guys who and and guys who are, who are like really to, like there are weirdos who like to target littoral society bass. I don't know if you guys know any of them, but I know no. of them. <laughs> <laughs> But there are guys who like who come to me like, oh yeah, I know where the rock I can go to, and I will catch one of their tagged fish within this two week period every year. No shit. Yeah, and and it's like that with telemetry. When you start looking at these things, there to some extent some of these fish are just like those wind up like the like the charged electricity track cars that from when we were kids. Where yep. you just have the trigger. Yeah. You know, just put the thing and it's like it just does the same track every year. Um which is really wild. It's it's one of those things where you wonder how these fish What do you attribute do it to? Do you think it's a DNA kind of thing? Do you think it's just uh, uh like you know, that's the way they were, the path they went, and that's just what's imprinted into them as uh, they go? Yeah, I, I think about this all the time, where it's like, why? Why do they do that? At what point is that switch, like, flip on or off, and then they learn this? Um, you know, because there's, within all these spawning places, there are fish that stay in for longer, or, like, go in for later. And one of the things when I was doing that Hudson work was really cool is that there's areas like at the mouth and the mouth of the Hudson was one of these areas where for a month, maybe in the fall, it's a funnel. You have all this mm -hmm. bait coming out of the Hudson. You have all these fish coming down from Massachusetts and all these other, they're going back to these, they're eventually going to go back to different spawning populations. Right now they're just following the bait and working down the coast. And all of a sudden you have fish from all, like, I mean, when I look at the tag list of people who, you know, cause I'm in these days, you, could, you have to look up all the tags. And so I get all these tags from our receivers at the mouth of the Hudson river and I'd end up calling got people who had tagged stripers from like eight different states, like Maine, Massachusetts, Virginia, North And they're Carolina. all just congregating yeah, at the same in, time. In that, in that four-week period, they all pass through the same spot. Yeah. And you're like, so if you're a bass coming out of the Hudson for the first time when you're like three or four years old, you know, going down with this wave of river herring and shad and, or menhaden that have come up river, and you're just eating and eating, and all of a sudden you're just like, those guys look cool. Sure. Let's go with them. See what yeah. happens, you know? Like, how does that happen? Or do you all, they see yeah. the school coming out? Well, so, so those are like the questions that are just keep me up at night. It's cool. And I'm trying to think, where are you on genetics? Are you not? So, yeah, we can do get into the No, genetics. I don't know. Well, I guess that, like, you know, in, in terms of, like, thinking about, you know, yeah. those bodies of fish, right? Yeah. Genetics is. Yeah, so, I mean, so the other part of this project is a genetics component, um, whereas we, so we have genetics on all the fish we tagged. Also, and this is like the great part of DMF and Massachusetts and working with the guys like y'all and ladies who like to fish, everybody is that between what we tagged and then all of the commercial sampling we do at the fish houses and all the recreational people who work with our, our volunteer angler data collection team, the SADCAT team, um, we were able to put, up, put together 5,000 samples from 2015 wow. to 2020. Genetic samples from oh, all wow. over. Yeah, that's a very sizable piece. Yeah, yeah. so like a big piece. So, so we have genetics for five thousand fish coming in. The first two thousand, I'm actually looking at the initial, like just fresh hot off the presses, like starting to get them to a point where I can even figure out what's going on on Friday. Really excited about it because it's about four years in the waiting. Um, but yeah, so we have genetics, and this is the other part I didn't really talk about yet is that we structured everything by size class, and this is like the. Of course, you do something and then everything changes. Uh, so, you know, it was yeah. 2015. So we're like, oh, we'll set up size classes. We'll do 28 inches and under. 
and then we'll like because like you know underfish then we'll do 28 to 34 as our slot fish and then we have commercial at 34 you know and up and now you know by now everything's now changed. changed yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, I mean, and even like the with the bait fish distribution um and all the pogies that we've had in boston harbor up here uh in that area between the last four or five years there's been a difference in where the commercial catch has come from absolutely and you guys probably see it on the water where a lot of guys who used to go down to the Cape we to used to go, like it used to be like the Chatham or the Peacock Hill Bite, you know, or Race Point, that yep. whole area, and then you know, then it kind of and for up here it was a lot. Of, well, obviously, nighttime is always a big time to go, and it used to be a deep water bite up here. The guys that were doing really good, and then now uh, the last few years it's been that pogey bite down in Boston Harbor, the pogey bite up here. I mean, when I started seeing boats on commercial days up here um that i didn't recognize it was like you know these guys were like talking on walkie talkies to each other not even like real radios <laughs> you know it's like they can't I, you know they came from the cape or from places that they normally don't fish uh, around here i mean i knew a handful of guys who would who were fishing commercial bass lived up here and were driving down to the cape every summer and, yeah. and that's where they're doing their bass fishing now they're just staying home because yeah. they can do it here um so yeah so things of course always change but um it, it's definitely a so cool to work in and, and the, our real so the real hope is like i said at the at the end of the day where i want to be with that study and hopefully in the next two years i'll wrap it up um two to three years is that take the genetics hopefully what we tagged is representative of the genetics of that whole area and then we can come up with an idea of that natal population migration route summer area does it make a difference and should we be thinking about how we're dealing with striped bass um, in Massachusetts, is there anything we can do to be more proactive to maximize angler opportunity, but also make sure that we're not messing with angler opportunity down the road, keeping those stocks healthy, keeping the, enough fish in the water so that, you know, next year there's more fish, the year after that there's more fish, and you guys have clients that are little ones and growing into big ones. Did you notice any differences with the fish that you had tagged with the size classes in terms of like either time of year they were migrating or depths they were migrating uh, at, how far they were traveling, how like... I can't look into the depths, unfortunately, of the tags I got. You can buy tags for more money that can give you depth. I didn't okay. do it. I have not gotten as deep as the... Um, and that's like stuff I can't wait to get into, as, as Matt was kind of alluding to a little bit, is I, I can start looking at, um, with the, once we get the genetics and everything else, I can look at you know, do fish that I tagged together on a certain day or like if there's a two day bite in Boston Harbor where those fish were all tightly wadded, not just like bigly wadded, do they end up staying together yeah. for the rest of the time or not? Um, and, you know, like, is there a difference in mortality by size, which there probably will be? Um, those are all things I'm going to look at. That's going to be something that goes in. Uh, the thing that's really jumped out at the level of data analysis I've done so far is that the Cape Cod Canal is a is a high mortality area. Yeah. Um, in terms of release fish? Or, I, no, so or if just, we just look at where the last detection I get of a fish. Like okay. I said, we have a, we have Cape Cod Canal cordon well, off. it's the ultimate choke point. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like, it's That's exactly point. it. Yeah. It's yeah. like fish in a barrel. Uh, yeah, it's yeah. fish in a barrel. So so the thing is, is um, what's really cool is, again, that migration route thing. And, and our previous study, uh, DMF tagged out on Stellwagen, right? And what they saw was that most of their fish came up through the canal in the spring they were up on Stellwagen around Cape and Cape Cod in the summer and then went back down the backside of Cape Cod to leave Massachusetts in the fall. There were fish that did the opposite and were, you know, yeah. in and out of the canal or, you know, in and out of the backside. But that was the predominant pattern. Um, now that we had fish from all over the Commonwealth, we saw different things. And to make a longer story short, what it ended up being is that 
fish that spend their summer in northern mass so the fish you guys are fishing on all summer almost like 95 percent of those fish up through the canal down through the canal yeah every year and so when you start stacking up all the little places that i see my the last detection of a fish in massachusetts it's almost half of all the last detections in massachusetts in a given year will be fall fish from them that spent all their summer in the north going back down through the canal they'll be like Guys up north, we got to do better. We got to catch those things. We're, we're, we're letting them get down. We're letting them get. You know what? We get the smart ones, right? Because they, they avoid everybody all the way out. Oh, yeah, no. that's one way to think of it, Chris. Yeah, no, I mean it is crazy. It's funny. I just remembered that, and like that brings to mind. It, yeah, they do. It's it's amazing to look at those individual fish though and be like, okay, like where did they get caught? Where where did I tag them? Where did they end up getting caught? Where did they end up getting detected? Because that just reminded me of a fish. I tagged one of the bigger fish I, I caught in the whole study um off of hull and the neck and left you know everything was great had a couple weeks of data it was a, this is the late august fish we tried to do all our fishing on this study in july and august which as you guys know is, yeah, the summer months yeah right. not not the best time necessarily yeah, to be but fishing. Th that's kind of like where their residents exactly right, well, like yeah. once they've finished once, their uh, once they hung out. and yeah. settled into that, a, that was the idea we were trying not to get fish as they're moving to someplace Correct. so we did that so yeah, i think in late august i caught a really nice you know 38 39 inch fish commercial fish Maybe it may have been a four over 40 inches. Um, tagged it, put it back in the water. We got great data. We had you know, data of it going all the way down. And then that next spring, on, on May 20th, I got the last detection of it right where I tagged it. No kidding. The receiver, like a third of a mile from where I tagged that fish. It came right back to that spot and got caught. All right, I got a crazy story for you. Ready <laughs> yeah. for this? So I'll never forget this. It was a Saturday morning. We're drifting in the mouth of the Merrimack. We catch a little, like, 26-inch striper, but it was really unique. Because the way we caught this fish, it was the only time this has ever happened to me. We foul hooked it with a circle hook on the top of on the top of the mouth, probably about an inch above the upper lip, like almost in like the snout area. And I just like laughed and it had a little exit wound. It looked like a red pimple, you know, like a teenage kid would have. And I also noticed it had like marks on its head, like an X, like you've been caught a couple times, like the line rubbing. So whatever. It was a Saturday morning. I'll go and tie it. I throw it back. The next day, on my afternoon trip on Sunday, opposite tide, I'm fishing three miles up the river, okay? We're fishing, catching a bunch of the same size fish. No. What do we catch? Swear to God. <laughs> Pull up the fish. It had the red dot, the X on its head. It was the exact, it was the exact same fish. I couldn't you, believe it. It loved you. you I you couldn't didn't believe it. at that time, though, right? No, nope, that one was clean. <laughs> that one was clean. <laughs> So it was the only time I follow hooked one. It was right in the same spot. It had that X. It was the same exact. It was yeah. the same exact fish. I couldn't believe it. That's awesome. And I'm like, wow, how many times do you could that happen? Does that happen? Uh, I don't know. Well, that's oh, been yeah. a that's been a <laughs> <laughs> that leads to other stories. I, I was gonna say we maybe we don't want to go into that one, but that's um, yeah, yeah. No, we'll, we'll, we can get there. Um, yeah, uh, in the post release mortality work we did, um, we did two years of post release, which we can get into now. Or if you guys have some more questions sure. about the migration stuff, we can backtrack to that real quick before oh, yeah. we get into yeah. that yeah. would you have any data on daily migrations do you go that deep into it or are you just looking at an overall season length i haven't i you know the the way we ran our array wasn't if you want to do that with this technology you absolutely me. can but and, and then like the study we're doing we i'll talk about next we did that to an extent okay um but this was much more about gating things off so you knew the general area fish was in rather than tracking it around day to day yeah and, minute I, by minute. and i would figure you'd probably need some sort of depth reading on that too to figure out on it, the deal well like it helps yeah it, you know it, it depends it depends what your question is you know yeah um 
It really depends what your question is. But yeah, if you if you really want to know about what fish are doing in a discrete area, you can set up a whole gridded array and you can actually at that point have second by second maps of the fish swimming around and doing oh, wow. things. And so that's more of a technology when we're talking about fish that really like a cut like the division's done a lot with cusk, haddock, yeah. and cod, where they really aggregate in a certain area to look at that. Um it's a real frequent tool for use around hot, like dams like Lawrence and Lowell with hydroelectric stations. If you're having issues with passage, you can do studies like that and you can really get an idea of where the fish are maybe spending all their time rather than going into a fishway or a fish elevator. Cool. So yeah, it's a, it's a different technology, but it's done sometimes. Yeah. That's really right, cool. The, that, yeah. That's the, and in, in, in that case, you have multiple receivers picking up the same fish. The same yeah. fish. At the same time. Yeah, the right. same, to be able to the triangulate. Same and so yeah. it's using multiple forms of data to really, yeah. really pinpoint the it's, location. It's basically like everything has to be time synced. And then it's saying, okay, you have these three, two or three receivers getting it. But this one got it like a millisecond later than that one. And this one got it a little quicker. Than, and so they can be like, okay, it's here. I think I remember, I think I did see a daily migration study that was taken in um, Plum Island Sound. Probably in like 2006, I think the study was done by UMass, I believe. Yep. Am I correct in that? Yeah. Yeah, I remember seeing that online and reading through that a few years ago, and it, that was pretty interesting. Yeah, it's cool. You can, when you get to smaller areas, you can start doing that kind of thing. Um, and again, it's all about your, your question that Martha Mather was the professor at UMass. She did a bunch of papers on straight bass residents in Plum Island Sound and, and how they fish used the, that territory and moved up and down with the tides and everything else. It's yeah. pretty, really cool. Really cool. Yeah. Um, it's the nice thing about science. There's always fishery sciences. If you're a fish nerd and you just want to, you just get so many ways you can look at it. Yeah, but just the explanation deeper deeper. From, from the uh, from that study. It's just like amazing how many different data points you actually get from getting those transmitter and the fish. You know, it's more than just where they're going. It's how long they're living. It's like it. It's, it, it's like, yeah. It's, well, it's amazing. And when Ben referenced that Stellwagen the first part of the study that was done, um, you know, the original goal was not to look at migratory patterns, right? The, yeah. the idea was to look at, well, we've got fish on Stellwagen Bank on some of these sand eel, yep. massive sand eel um, groups. Right? Yeah, and back so, then. Yeah, so yeah. we wanted to see what are the migratory, like what are the movement patterns within, you know, from federal into state water. So, right, when, yeah. when do those fish go, or do they go from federal to state? And But what came out of it was a lot more data than I think was... It, initially anticipated as those fish because the tags had longer lives and they they ended up migrating so there was a lot more data that came out of that and you're not i mean towards the end of the study and the ones you still are you still seeing stripers getting pinged on snow wagon anymore because i feel like that hasn't been a thing in a long time there hasn't been the receiver array right. yeah look at it yeah so again it's like that question that's what the question they had so they we went out and i wasn't there at the time but they went out and put receivers there to say what where they were in relation to the yeah, state there, line there actually were yeah there was more receivers like along the state line right so it was, yeah. the fish got tagged on Stellwagen, but then it was correct when do we see them cross yeah, yeah. do we see them cross yeah. over that those because we used to go football uh, football tuna fishing down there all the time back in those mid early aughts mid aughts yeah and you couldn't get away from humongous stripers. And I haven't been tuna fishing down there, but like we used to, in a while, but we used to like troll spreader bars and catch like you catch big stripers. fifteen to thirty humongous stripers. Yeah. They they were a nuisance, you know. Yeah. Uh, for when you're trying to tuna fish, and I just I haven't heard about it as much anymore. So I don't know if it's because the sand deals don't seem to be there like they were back in the day. Um, but again, I haven't really fish there in a long time so yeah i, I fish discrete areas on Stellwagen, and i go down to like the southeast or southwest corner but um on the northern half of Stellwagen, i certainly put a lot of things that straight bass would be happy to eat in the water and 
haven't had it happen yet. No, yeah. not, not hearing that for sure lately. Yeah, in, yeah. in recent years for sure. Yeah, for sure. Hurt anybody? Either. Yeah. Yep. Cool. Yeah. So it's a really cool study. It's still got more to come. So when I'm all done with the analysis, I'd love to come back and talk about. Oh, more we are going to there. have you back and go. We're going to go crazy with it. I can't yeah. wait. That's yeah. super exciting. You must be excited. What most so much work went into it? It is. Yeah, it's a ton of work, and it's part. I'm doing my. It's part of a PhD program I'm doing while I work with the division. So, it's a lot more to come, and hopefully it'll be useful. And uh, it's uh, again I, at heart, I just. I'm I'm really into why fish move and where they go and trying to figure it out. And it's the same reason we all fish. It's just like right. That's the best. Like, like trying to yeah. figure it out why. It's like why did that work today? Or like, what can <laughs> I do tomorrow to make that work better? Or, or try this other thing. What do I think is going to happen? So it's just uh, now I when I go fishing I get to do it for play, and when I'm at work I sometimes I get to do it for fun. But you work, go. you have a good time at work. Nice. Yeah. Yep. And you guys are even now working together on a newspaper project, right? Yeah. Yep. So Matt Matt's helped out a lot with that project. Um, it's primarily led by uh, Micah Dean and Bill Hoffman and myself. Um, and there's just a lot of help from everybody in the division. So that came out of this next thing where in the, you know, by the late 20, by the late teens, everybody was pretty freaked out about where striped bass was going. And it became really clear that post-release mortality. So there's so many fish being caught and they're all being released, but that nine, 10% of fish that die that we estimate die after being caught and released was more harvest than the actual fish people were keeping okay right so it's keep it's more of the overall mortality on the coastal stock than actually people keeping fish and so it became an issue of all right if we want to with the amount of spawners going down so we have less fish to make more fish we're having we've really had for the last 15 years now pretty poor recruitment out of the chesapeake bay yeah minus are, one year right yeah it was like one 2012, 2015 2015 2015 was uh is the big year 20 i think 2018 okay it was okay how was um, this year did they release it yet uh when they uh you mean last year last year yes yeah not good yeah not good yeah um and we'll see what this year brings typically striped bass like wet cold springs which is not <laughs> no that's uh that's kind of what we were talking about last week yeah. with james jukes and uh and clay they wanted us to specifically ask you guys <laughs> he was getting worried about the spring i was i don't know i don't know what it is but yeah, i've noticed yeah. when we have wet when we have wet springs and wet winters that the striper fishing is better well i don't know about the striper fishing but the striper baby making is better yeah um well they're all staying inside they're bored specifically speaking of the merrimack river you know all the water coming down from the mountains and all the snow runoff and everything yeah um, you know when the river's really flowing he feels as though that's when the best fishing comes to the area huh for the early season stuff for the early know. season stuff <laughs> Yeah, he, he he always equated, and you know what? I I kind of like thought the same thing. When we do have a snowy winter. We do usually have a pretty good spring, for sure. That's cool. Yeah, I, I'm really embarrassed to say it. So I've been, I moved up here in 2012. I was thinking about this on the way over here. I, um, I love straight bass fishing. So I've been living here for a little over a decade. I could pretty much go to anywhere else in Massachusetts and have a better idea of where to straight bass fish than my own backyard, just because so much of my straight bass fishing <laughs> has been for these research projects all over the Commonwealth. I haven't had time to like, fish here, <laughs> well, just a little bit. Like, and I, you know, I usually do other things when I'm fishing for fun at this point. And so I'm like, man, I, at some point, I really got to fish like right where I live more. Yeah, walk down the street, man. It's I know, great. I've got, I've got a boat. I've got two young kids. I, I fish a fair amount in Plum Island sound last summer which is a lot of fun do you keep your boat on the docks uh it's at riverfront at riverfront yep. nice on the parker nice yep, yep. nice so 
it's a it's a lot of fun uh, i have a i have a tuna addiction so yeah when i when i have time generally to tuna to fish i'm i'm going for tuna well we were pretty pumped this past year we started having some of the footballs come back closer to home and, and catchable numbers you know yeah you know yeah. The last few years you've been seeing them pop up you know here and there you hear somebody but nobody was really catching them except the guys on the ball we kind of instantly catch them catch some shorts and then this year um yeah it was a lot better you know some guys were getting them on spin rods we got a, a few trolling it yeah. was early though i yeah. mean it didn't it early last, yeah. Right? yeah yeah um well into no I, we, got one. July, we got one september we got one yeah, yeah. right before yeah. labor day weekend we yeah. got Great. one okay. yeah nice yeah we got ones about we didn't know the whole size of it because the back half got eaten well, by a mako you, yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah but then we got the mako so yeah. it was good we got the bastard which yeah which was safely released yeah, gonna, yeah. Yes. <laughs> unfortunately because that was the first one that i've actually landed and yeah but we had to let that one go even yeah, that's wild man because i mean that's a story that's a climate change story where it's just I mean, people were not catching makos up by us 10 years ago. And then ago. all of a sudden, yeah. now every time I go shark fishing, I really feel like I got a realistic shot yeah. getting a mako. Yeah. yeah. And you're seeing more and more threshers, too. Yeah. 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 No, it's it's wild to see them move into the Gulf of Maine like this. Yeah. Um, we had, I had one need a striper or a pogey, excuse me, in four feet of water. Off of Plum Island a couple of years ago. Two days after we had a great white eater straight. I was gonna say yeah. you're sure it wasn't a white. No, no, it was a, the second one was a Mako. Yeah. And we fought him for about 10, 10, 15 minutes on the Basque gear, ended up breaking us off. So whatever, we go back and troll, and then there was I don't know if it was the same one or another one who was just swimming parallel to the boat, hundred percent of Mako. And you know you know Nat Moody, right? Yeah. Yeah, Nat Moody I think ended up catching it in the same general area a, a week or two later. Just to confirm. Yep. That's cool. Yeah. I know Ma uh, Scott McGuire's hooked a couple while mackerel fishing. Yeah. You know, poor beagles too. Yeah. You can get quite a few of those. You got one. A lot of poor beagles. Uh, yeah. Poor beagle mackerel fishing, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I was actually striper fishing. I caught oh. it. Um, it was a, it was just a pup, small one. But I saw her and I was on just doing a day with the family. I was on my way to the Isle of Shoals and there was a big one just cruising right on top. A big poor beagle? Yeah. Oh, no. Yeah. Okay. I was like, oh, that is definitely a poor beagle. <laughs> and um, I don't want to say big, big. It was probably like eight, uh, six, six, six to eight feet that, that size. Yeah, it's a good size fish. Uh, but I do feel like the, the poor beagle population is healthy because like – I like to take a trip out to Halfway Hump to get mackerel if I even have to, super early. Um, every time I've gone there, I feel like um, a poor beagle has just taken the sabiki, <laughs> like, to see you by, yeah. you know? Um, yeah, that's uh, that's one of the goals for me this year, actually, is when we do get into haddock fishing in April is to actually get one because I've never brought one on. They they keep eating my haddock while I have my shark line out. It's yeah. wicked annoying. Yeah, yeah they're yeah. they're not they're they're not usually uh that good. You know, it's not easy to catch the poor beagle. Yeah. Right? It's like yeah. You, you you see them and well, and they take your baits and they take your uh so many times small fish. Your, sometimes we reeled up like a half a haddock or something like that and it's just like oh no. Yeah. Very sneaky, but we got some tricks we're going to try out this year. Nice. So I'm yeah. excited for that. Nice. Well, I want to hear the report on that one. Yeah, we'll do. Let's see how that goes. We'll do. And um all right, so yeah, let's get back to the striper thing you guys are doing now. So Yeah. So so you know, so it rolls around we know that post-release mortality is the kind of the best way or the only way we're going to be able to reduce the mortality you know we don't nobody wants to do effort control right yeah I mean, we've already had to ratchet down the number of fish you can keep then and change the size limit to try and bring down mortality get away from overfishing um so i mean what do you have left after that yeah what nobody Nothing. wants to talk nobody it's wants to talk about nobody wants to talk about close season yeah nobody no. that's what no. nobody wants that's, to do you know that's the next thing yeah, yeah. you know like that's the next thing so it's like all right so what can we do we got you know so proactively Massachusetts was one of the states that led this charge to put in circle hooks 
for live and dead bait, hoping that would would work uh, because there's some literature that wasn't hadn't gone through like peer review and been published in scientific journals, but had suggested that it works for striped bass. There's lots of other species it works for. So, you know, the ASMFC puts out a rule on circle hooks. So now we're, on, we're using circle hooks. And that's coast-wide. Is that coast-wide or just Massachusetts? That's right? coast-wide. Coast and it's coast-wide. Yeah. Massachusetts adopted it a, a year earlier. Correct. Okay. Than the rest of the coast. Um, but, I mean, so then it was like, basically, you know, they asked us to figure out if it was going to work or not. Um, or to try and make attempt attempt at it. So we did two years um, where we used those same acoustic tags. They were, at, you know, at a certain free, at a certain time frequency, putting out a signal. But these ones, instead of having you talked about depth, um, we had a sensor on it that told us whether it was swimming or not. Okay. So it could sense tail beats. Uh, so we would catch these fish, collect a bunch of different data on them. We had a much denser array. We did it in Salem Sound, so we had a, a bunch of uh, receivers within Salem Sound and a gate around it. And we only fished in Salem Sound. And we tagged hundreds of fish over two summers. And basically then looked to see if they lived for two weeks or not. Okay. Uh, hopefully they stayed in the ray. Some fish, you know, you tagged them on the edge of the ray, they were gone. Uh, sometimes they came back. We also would know, like we, we talked about with that last study, there's so many receivers out there. If a straight bass is alive, you're, you're going to find out. Yeah. You're, you're like you were just going to find out. It's going to be detected by somebody and you're going to get, a, 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 your, you know, somebody's going to email you the data. Um, so that was the study we did for two years. Um, and it, and so you were talking about it. So then this past summer, we actually did a tag retention study just to make sure everything worked. But you were talking about your, your foul hook straight bass. So we had to, we, um, we recently took over this lab in Salem and Cat Cove that we used to have decades ago. We got it back from Salem State University. So they have a tide pool with gates. And so we flooded it, closed the gates, grade, or we had to keep them open, graded it off to keep fish in there. And then we went out and caught bass, tagged them, and threw them in there to make sure that they, to see what would happen, make sure they retained the tags and everything else, just to be like really careful about our work. And so we were out doing that um, in June of this last year, or July of this last year, early July. And I caught a nice bass. I reel it in off of a, one of the rock piles we really liked. And I was like, this fish has one of our tags on it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we had tagged this fish before. Okay. We are like, great. <laughs> Sorry, sucker. You're getting a new deal. It was like barely hanging on because we, we designed them to fall off after a while. You know, we wanted the wire, the wire, we use these wire pins through the back, hoping they'd corrode off after a while because you don't mm-hmm. want the thing to carry yeah. it for the rest of their life. Um, and so, all right, you're getting a new tag and you're going in the swimming pool for the summer. And so then when we get back to the lab and we looked it up, I had caught that fish in the exact same place two years before within a week of when we caught it. No that no, original wow. tag would be like yeah. the same spot <laughs> like two years before, almost exactly two years before. It was like, and I had gotten it. I had been the one who caught it and tagged it. So I was like, wow. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Like, like going back to the same spot. No kidding. Yeah. That was cool. That was really cool. But yeah. So we, um, we did hundreds of those. But also, um, and we were fishing, we're collecting a bunch of different information while we fish. This is all on state boats. And so we were looking, we would run a stopwatch and we record how long the fight time was, then how long it took to unhook, how long the handling time was, and when, you know, like, so then basically like the total time when to go back in the water. Uh, and this is for every fish we caught. We didn't just tag um, every fish we caught. We were trying to kind of spread it out over a course of, days we didn't want to tag too many fish in one day we wanted to get as yeah. many sizes as we can it was really hard actually there was just so many small fish in in salem sound we i wish we caught more big fish they just did not come into salem sound these over those two years like that bite was further offshore or down by boston yeah um which is like nothing better than being like 
But I can see the fleet of boats a mile outside of the, <laughs> the array, especially for these giant. Um, you can't catch fish out there. Um, but so uh, we did that, and what uh, we recorded water temperature. We recorded every fish's length, where that, uh, where the hook was, like the hook location. Was there any blood? How strong was the fish after surgery or just after being, if we didn't do surgery, just like did it swim away strong just from the experience? How long does the surgery take? It's under two minutes. It's probably like a, uh, you know, really fast one would probably be around a minute. Yeah. But I mean, basically they're in a little cradle, a tube with, um, and then you just take it with pins through the ends of the tube. Yeah. And you just take, you just move a scale on, you know, where each pin's going to go, put it right through the back. And then you're putting a little disc to anchor it on the on the backside where the pins come through on the opposite side of the fish, just right below the dorsal fin, and and then curling, cutting them off and curling them up so they're tight. Yep. And they're not going to irritate. Yeah, so it's not like the the other tags. That no, you're so it. so that's the other thing. Really, like, there's no way to attach these things without but some this. level of hurting the fish. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. But we were trying to do it as minimally as possible. We didn't want to do those surgeries where it's like, yeah, okay, you know, of course. Um, Cause I was going to say, you know, if you're cutting these things open yeah. and throwing them back, no, I wonder why you're getting a high mortality rate. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> no, and, and so, I mean, so what's crazy is we talked about, so this 9% number was uh, Paul Diodati who was our director. Oh, Dan's uncle. Yeah. No, we're not, no, we're not right. Right. I was going to ask. We was like, wait to see how he's joking around about that. <laughs> um, yeah, I used to joke around like, see this, he signs my license. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have to pay. No. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's funny. Yeah. So, um, so he had done back in the nineties, he'd done the original estimate in that same tide pool. I was talking about, they went and caught it. They got a fish out of a pound net, um, brought hundreds of fish in, and then had like everybody that they knew come and try and catch those fish with fly rods, casting, you know, everything, whatever way they could. And then they tagged them. And then at the end of the summer, they let all the water out and they caught all the fish that were going out to find the live ones. And then they basically walked around and found all the tags from the dead ones that had been on the bottom and decomposed. Yeah. And then tried to figure out like what the post-release mortality was. But it wasn't supposed to be for like what it is now used for. It even says in the paper, this shouldn't be used for a coastwide post-release mortality estimate but that's the only number out there okay so that's what gets used so the part of this is to try and improve upon that um so the nine percent is the that assumed number and what we ended up showing was just about for what we did so i mean this is really just like this specific thing we did chunked herring like atlantic herring and mackerel or live herring mackerel live mackerel yeah um and with circle hooks and we used a 6-0 gamakatsu in line an 8-0 gamakatsu in line, a 10-0 eagle claw circle in line, and then we use the eight, uh, the 9-0 gamakatsu J. Yeah, live bait hook. Um, and, oh, the live bait hooks, the thick ones, right? Uh, no, not the, like, the longer the, shank. The longer shank. Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, That's and, like a haddock hook. Like, okay. Yeah. yeah, and um, and we did not actually find a difference between any of those hooks or among all the hooks in terms of release mortality post-release mortality yeah with the trans whether they yeah, were, got hooked or not uh there was some difference in hook location but it didn't come out to a difference in post-release mortality wow so i think that a big element of that though is like you guys not only are you biologists you're experienced fishermen and i feel like when you know how to use like if i'm fishing with a j hook i'm fishing differently than i would be fishing with a circle hook Right. So I feel like a lot of people that complain about circle hooks not doing their thing, like it's either that that hook is going right into its gut because they're just letting it swallow the thing or they're trying to set the hook and they're just pulling it right out of its mouth and they're not getting a good hook set. 
Um, I just, I don't know. Like, I actually love circle hooks now. I, I can't imagine even fishing with J hooks, especially if you're trying to have multiple rods in the water, if you're like commercial fishing or something. Yeah, that's um, so. Yeah, that's. I mean, I mean, how do you get around that though? You can't. You can't, right? That's that's right. Um, I mean, we did try to bring out. Um, we did try and and bring anglers of varying experiences, and we recorded <laughs> who caught fish. Okay. Um, and we didn't see a difference there, but I, I mean, I think it's possible that a lot of the people we were bringing people who had in most cases we weren't bringing people who had no idea what they were doing and the people we did bring who are truly novice anglers maybe made one trip so they wouldn't catch enough fish to probably show up yeah um but we did so that could be it i mean uh maybe the j hook that we used is better at not we that's something we only looked at one j hook we don't know if that j yeah. hook was better at not gut hooking fish than maybe some other j hooks would be um, we did, when we did hook selection, we talked to uh, people, we talked to guides, we went into a several different tackle shops and asked them what their most popular hooks were. So when we made these hook choices, we did try and, and get information about what was being used beforehand, but we could only do so much to control for angler experience, mm-hmm. which is definitely just part of the deal. Um, so did, did you find any difference in types of shapes of the circle hooks, like wider gaps, thicker wires, shorter shank, anything of that nature? Yeah. So, I mean, again, we um, that, that's really a great question. And it's something we are very interested because, again, we looked at the hooks we looked at. And and part of the reason that we use, we chose those hooks was trying to we, we feel that and I'd love to get your guys take on this. But when we start after the first year where we just did eight oh the first year, we just did eight oh um, circle and the nine oh. Uh, Jay. Jay and we were like they pretty much have the same gap width okay and we we think that that width that measurement the distance between the point of the hook and the shank could be that determining factor in the efficacy of the circle hook and so we tried then to go to the 6-0 and to the 10-0 to get larger or smaller gap widths and did you find a difference between the two we really didn't find much of a difference um we did see that the six o's had the lowest gut hooking you're interested but the probability of mortality uh evened out over everything yeah um Are you, when you guys were fishing them were you like letting fish run were you not letting them run just hitting and, I mean, and so yeah we were we were letting fish run um and again it's like we can't be you know, we're not necessarily novice anglers, but we were trying to kind of simulate what we, we thought might people might do if you're like, all right, I'm just going to let this thing run so I know yeah. I hook it and, and do different things. Yeah. Um. So, yeah, I mean, we were we were doing everything. We weren't trying to be like, I'm going to be expert at hinge hooking this thing all the time because that's not what people are going to do. Um, And uh, so that was interesting. And, again, uh, you know, so we did this with, you know, a couple different hooks, certain hooks, and it really – application that a lot of people do but it's not the only application for live or dead baiting coastwide there's a lot of you know it doesn't cover bunk you know we didn't do any bunker dunking yeah know, with you know we didn't we're live baiting we just didn't have school we caught a couple fish circle hooks are tough with pogies so it's tough yeah. to get a hook set um yeah. so there's there's ways around it you got to rig them up a little bit differently bridle bridle yeah. them yeah I mean, you know and and you know the fact that there's that this isn't the be all end all either right this yeah. is so, yeah, that's what i'm trying to say is that like yeah. i think that there's we didn't find a circle hook thing here. We in, we are very confident in our results. We do, I think we think we did a really good job with the study, but what we know is that we it doesn't cover all circle hook mm-hmm. applications. So there could be a conservation benefit for circle hooks in different applications. Um, you know, I I grew up in Long Island Sound. 
a lot of my live bait fishing or dead bait fishing for straight bass was uh you know it's warmer there than it is here and so like in the gulf of maine it's kind of getting warmer but in the gulf of maine we have a lot of good data on studies showing that fish are really staying in the top of the water column mm -hmm. um it was the opposite where i grew up fish were down deeper to get cooler yeah not stay up top where it's warmer and so i was typically fishing in 40 to 80 feet of water mm -hmm. on reefs drifting with a three-way rig and i was doing scup men apogies uh and hickory shad yeah and i i i loved circle like you i was like i switched to circle hooks and i had one day of being like these things are junk i figured out how to use them and i never looked back yeah i had so many less fit i don't want to keep a 35 yeah. or 45 inch yeah. fish because i, I know think they, like they, for mackerels and chunks i've only used circle hooks i think yeah. for as long as i can remember maybe like when i was real young we probably got whatever the the bait shop had you know yeah. but definitely once i started fishing on my own and talking to guys at the bait shop and working on the party boats and stuff like that we always use circle hooks and yeah. that's just kind of how i grew up and came to the live bait and then obviously when we started getting the pogies that kind of changed we tried with circle hooks first Kind of got away from it, and then um, you know, depending what we were doing too. Like we'd rig them differently if we were trolling. We rig them up differently if we were drifting. We rig them up a little bit differently if we were anchored up in spot lock too. Right. Yeah. You know, each one of those had a kind of a different way we would hook it to get you know the most amount of bites. So, um, but it was funny. So when we first got him in. Me, me, and my buddy Mike, my my other captain. Have you? I don't know if you met Mike. You've probably met. I him. think I met Mike at the. Did he? He was at Plum Island Circus yeah. last year. I yeah, think I met him. Yeah. Yeah. So we were trying to figure out the pogey thing, other than snagging and dropping, and trying to do some new stuff, or just trolling and things like that. And we had one day like, all right, let's fish circle hooks today, and like, let's just talk about it. And dude, I don't know what it was. I think we both went like twelve for twelve on big fish on circle hooks. We're like, yes. And then the next day it was like, you know, eight for ten. And then all of a sudden it was like two for nine. We're like, ah, oh, fuck, these things don't work. <laughs> <laughs> right well it's hot <laughs> but you know sometimes it's just the attitude of the fish that are biting too you know yeah and yeah. it's so funny you talk about circle hooks if you like if you watch you know I, i'm a person I, I do seminars i go to a lot of seminars i'm a geek i watch youtube videos that are just ridiculous i see tons of people on my boat fish and some people just let that thing run for like 15 20 seconds some people get hit and they hit the thing right away. Some people put it in the rod holder and not pay attention and they hook up. And I, I just can't find any rhyme or reason which way works better to get the perfect hook set. It it really is definitely there. I do feel like there is a too long to let it run. Uh, I try not. To, I, I tell my customers like you know, depending on the experience level, I'm like, listen, give it a one, two, three, lever up. You know, that's all you really need. Uh, my guys that are really good that don't like letting them run. I just have them hold their rod tip high. When they feel that tap, just drop their rod tip, yeah, and it yeah. just comes tight. Yeah. And quite honestly, man, we've been doing more and more of that throughout the years, and they've been pretty solid hookups yeah. uh, the past couple of years. Um, and, again, this is kind of like that that fish's attitude that day, like when we're trolling because we're trolling with circle hooks with live bait. And we used to let them hit and run, run up, put the lever up, and fight the fish. And a lot of times we, we would miss them, but – if we still had bait, we could drop line back and catch them again. Um, and it seems like this year, even on big fish and small fish, we were just getting a lot of and letting go, you know, and either murking the whole bait or just I think not coming back. Just, it has to do with fish size, honestly. Like, I, no, well, it was also happening with the big ones, yeah. too. So we just started locking up the drags and um, 
and then like I would say our hookup ratio was really good on the circle hooks on yeah, the troll. So, so like trolling, I definitely like to lock the drags because if it does get picked off, I feel it's a schoolie, and if it Correct. actually hooked is a hook set, then it's a fish that I want. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. even then, we were still catching the schoolies just as fine too. Yeah. So yeah. I think but also macro size dependent too. You know, if I had a nine and ten inch macro on there, I wasn't locking the drag up. Yeah, right. Know? And I think that's a big part of it when yeah. you think about how that fish is going to. Pro- it's not only the size of the striper, but the size of the bait, the species of the bait. You know, mackerel are pretty easy to. They're fast and they're long. So like, I think that a lot of the times when you watch it and you're, you guys are doing, you're doing the slow trolling, and sometimes you can see mm-hmm. it happening. Yep. I have a, a tower on my recreational boat, so I, I can be up there and trolling. I can actually see a lot of times the bass come up behind it, grab it. And it's they're grabbing, they're trying to get them, and they grab them sideways. So they're making that initial run sideways, Correct. and they're hitting them. And then they're like, gonna be like, okay, how do I get this thing the right way so I can go down my? And so like that's what happens sometimes if you just had it locked up. It's just, or if you you're waiting and you, it, it pops out when you do tighten up, is because that if it's a bigger back, especially, yeah, sideways in the thing's mouth. So it's 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 bait size, it's the fish size is coming after you, and that changes by species. So the when I was fishing scup, especially the three way is exactly what when you, I think you were saying it where it's like. You would fish it, you hold your rod tip high. Mm-hmm. You, when you got the real hit, then you just drop the rod tip right to the to the you know, yeah, to the tip, get the tip yep. in the water, yep. and then just really slowly just do that. Yep. Like that's all you had to do, and it worked. Yep. But the thing about the scup fishing was if you, if you I don't know, you guys probably have never handled scup. Have either of you caught scup before? Yeah, I have. Yeah. 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 Like, so I mean, like they were not most of the time you would get an initial thump. And yeah. They were not that you did not do that on that because they those fish were well, I don't know if they're hitting them. Some people say they fish, they, you know, they use their tails. Some say they don't. Sometimes I don't know if they're using their tails or just hitting them with their, you're just getting them once. But almost always with a scup, you get an initial hit. And they're like, I think they're just trying to disorder. Like, Same orient. thing kind of happens with a pogey. We, yeah. we, we yeah. actually talk about this yeah. all the time. Yeah. It's almost yeah. like it's taking its nose and like, yeah, yeah. Her what, over. I, what yeah. I think's happening, right? And yeah. same thing too. I always wait for like the second little run. Yeah. Like you feel that little bump, bump, bump. Like if you drift the mackerel, you'll feel that real quick and then it will go. And I am convinced they're down on the water. And again, I, it's, I've thought this because of the visual when I fish them up on high, if I'm like anchored. And I'm, you know, live baiting off the back of my boat with no balloons, and I see the fish come up. I think they're coming up, and they're hitting it with their head and spinning it around and coming back for it. And I just think it happens so quick, you know, that people don't understand that. Because, you know, I've never seen, you know, a lot of times you get the bait still in the mouth, right? I've never seen a fish in there backwards. It's always head first. Yeah, it's that. Especially it, the scup. It's like, boom. Correct. They're, they're, like, they're not eating that thing. Yeah, exactly. Those it's things a, look like the freshwater sunfish, if you don't yeah, understand like it. They're like, I think that has a lot to do with it. It's yeah. the shape of the fish. Yeah. It's yeah. like a pan fish, yeah. pretty much. Yeah, they got to get a turn it one way or another. And, yeah. and, I think, and I think that's like the, the nighttime meal guys when they're casting, right? They're not setting the hook right away when they get that first thump. They'll be the tap, tap, drop it, boom, you know? And I think that's what they're doing. I think they're hitting it with their head or whatever they can and turning it around. And you mentioned that story about, you know, the stripers hitting it sideways when you're up in the tower. I was fishing in shallow water in the river one time. You were not there with me. I think it was a charter. I think I took you there the next day. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, That's when the bite turned off, probably. No. <laughs> and uh, it was hot. It was one of those hot days. The water was like chocolate brown. It was like mid-July, and I'm like in five feet of water. I'm like, what am I doing here? But I was catching fish on pogies. And I just see my pogie, you know, just swimming about 20, 30 feet behind the boat, the gold flash in that murky water. And I see this striper, dude, huge, huge. And he was just like nose behind the tail of the pogey. And this was like 
it felt like an eternity, but there were there was absolutely no sense of urgency in the pogi or the striper. Like it was so hot, neither of them wanted to do anything. And the pogi made a fateful turn. I'm like, oh, here we go. And the striper just goes. And it was like a dog eating a pillow. Like just put his mouth around the pogi. The pogi's flapping in its mouth. I'm watching the striper, dude. It had to be 46 inches at least. It was humongous. And it was like walking like a dog with swimming with like a dog with a bone in its mouth. I couldn't believe it for like five seconds. I'm like, eat it. And then he just lets go, let's go. And the pokey just kept swimming. I've never seen anything like it in my life. How low was the water? Like 70 degrees in there? It was warm. It was it was definitely on I probably at that time in my life would not have been in there if it was more than 73, 74 degrees. But I'm pretty sure it was right on the cusp. It was like yeah. in that 73, 75. But then, you know, a and couple the, of, the pogies are a little more resilient. They're yeah, still alive, but so. they still don't even like that. But yeah. it was it was the, it was an outgoing time because of where I was boating, but um, where I was facing. So I must have been at the top of the turn somewhere around there. But there were days where there was a week where I was fishing in Joppa Flats in 85-degree water with pogies, and I, I couldn't believe how many fish were in there. I could not believe it. It made no sense, you know, but... They do weird things, man. Yeah, maybe, uh, it's like they get stuck there. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. They weren't stuck there this year. Yeah. No. There was, in that New York study I did, there was a one fish. And uh, for three summers in a row, we would go and we had all the array, but then we'd also go and bring a hydrophone with us and listen for tags. And you guys know where the Mets play in Flushing Meadows? I know that they play somewhere. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, so this is like in the East River. It's in this back bay in the East River, like our, the outside of the East River. It goes into Lyon Sound, and it's just like so gross, so disgusting, so hot in the middle of August. And for three years in a row, I'd go there. I'd put the hydrophone in the water, and I'd be like, there's a fish here. Like, <laughs> it, like by every speck that we have on striped bass, that thing should be dead. Like, there's no yeah. oxygen. We're taking right. environmental measures. Like, I'm, I'm putting on a full, like, environmental probe. and like, there's no oxygen. It's way too hot. The pH sucks. Like, everything about this water sucks. That's a, like, some guy just filleted that thing and threw the, the rack and, you know, off his boat in the marina right there. And then, like, I get my detections at the end of the year from other people, and it, it was alive. It was there, and, and it, like not only was it there, it was like every summer it went back there, yeah. even though it was the worst possible place a trip to, to be. the spa. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there's something good. There's there. something good. Yeah. Something. It's a lot of sewer crabs. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> sucking down sewer crabs. Well, I wonder if all these... the baby alligators coming yeah. out of the sewer. Drains. I wonder how much, and this is probably data that you'll find hopefully when you start looking at it all. Uh, I wonder if these migration patterns, either seasonally or, or daily uh, migration pattern, uh, patterns, are really hampered by the prevability of bait. Like we talked about those Stellwagen bass on sand eels. You know, those bass probably aren't out there anymore because those sand eels aren't out there anymore. Like how much are they following schools of mackerel compared to schools of herring? Oh, 100%. I mean, I think that's the you know, I talked about things change. Is, uh, the, and, we, and you guys talked about you know, we talked about how the commercial fishing is kind of shifted north off the Cape. And, you know, we now have this huge biomass for the last five years or so, whether it's around Boston, south of Boston or up here of pogies. Yeah. And we've had inshore herring coming, you know, herring that are coming in for closer to shore in the early part of the summer off Boston. So it, there's like the baits here right now. It's not necessarily as much of the bait being down on the Cape and, and the fishing has gotten better up here. The fish are up here because of that. So there are these big patterns. I don't know if I redid my study now what it would show, but I, I'd hope it showed the same type of fidelity, but maybe it wouldn't because the bait seems to have shifted. Um, I did share the bad news of the circle hook stuff. I, I want to go back and share the good news before we get too far off of it, which was that um, 
So I talked about all of that, all those different data elements that we collected, you know, the temperature, length, fight time, all this stuff. Um, using all that data, what we were able to figure out is that there are a couple things that put together do help us predict post-release mortality, which is really cool. So coming out of this study, well, we didn't do the, cir the circle hook thing didn't work out the way, way we hoped it would. We now have a model that we can feed data into for anybody who catches a striped bass. And if they record the right data, we can come up with a probability because of all those hundreds of fish we had tags on and the hundreds more that we caught of them dying. Um, so this year, the division is going to like roll out this new project based on that. What we really found was that uh, if you get down to where that hook was located, whether it's in the mouth, a foul hook, esophagus, like a deep, but not like down in the stomach, yeah. the gills. Or what would you call it if like the circle hook is pulling the stomach out of the mouth? That's you know, a stomach hook. Yeah, that yeah, would yeah. be a stomach hook, yeah, even yeah. though it's not yeah. in the stomach, but it's pulling it out. We yeah, call it a yeah. stomach hook. Right? Oh, I got because okay. that's generally the gut hook the way it goes. Yeah, you know, and and I mean, and this comes to like practical recommendations. Like you guys might be good, and, and like there's a couple of us at work who are good, and you can get a gut hooked hook out if you know what you're doing oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. without screwing Actually, stuff up easy. really fast. Yeah, yeah. yeah just yeah, twist it. That, yeah, I mean, like, there's tricks, but you know, a lot of people can't do that. So like for the most part, it's like if you don't know what you're doing, just cut that thing and let it be yeah because i think you can do a lot of damage trying to i mean if you've already done a lot of damage in the process of the fight if you brought the stomach outside yeah. you can see that hook um i mean I, we saw hooks i've seen fish that have you can see their liver coming out of their mouth yeah um but um yeah so anyways hook location blood uh swimming ability uh we combined all these things into something we call the condition score when we did the study and there was only two of us doing the tagging there was myself and bill hoffman and uh, and so we were very in close communication about how that condition score worked, but it was one to four, one being a perfectly you know, like lip hooked, no blood, very healthy fish, swam away strong, like low fight and handling time and everything else. Um, four being like you're pumping blood and like by the side of the boat and you can't revive it. Yeah. Yeah. So that dead fish. Um, so different fish too. You would take the time to swim them a little bit, make sure. Yeah. That, yeah like you know, things like resuscitating stuff like yeah. that. Like how how strong this fish was upon release and everything else. We we baked all these things down to something we call condition score, and that was the main factor when we did all this. We can't teach everybody condition score, but we can break it out into those little subcomponents that Bill and I were, were looking at on the paper, or like in our like as it was happening, and assigning an overall condition score. And we can ask people to record those. So, and when we do that, what we really found was that if you looked at how long it took to unhook the fish, the unhook time, water temperature, and hook location with these big predictors of probability, and you can go from like a lip hooked fish, didn't really matter what the water temperature was or the time, you had a very low probability of that fish dying, like 3% to 6% probability of that fish ending up dying. And then, you know, we go to like an esophagus was not typically bad, but if you had warmer temperatures and a longer fight time, you might get up to like a 35, 40% probability. Now mortality. what would be a warmer temperature? So that's one thing about our study. We did it, we, I think we saw like 16 to 21 degrees Celsius. Okay. So we saw like high 50. Yeah, what's 60, that in America? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah like 60 to 70 something. You know. America. America. Right, right. Imperial? Yeah. Um, yeah, like, like yeah, what we, you know, if you're fishing in G late June, early July through August. Yeah. You know, in Massachusetts, but in Salem Sound, right? Yeah. So we're not seeing much above 70 degrees. Now, we all know like a lot of fishing pressure happens in water that's higher. Like you were talking about, there's places, but I mean, certainly you get south of us, there's a lot of fishing that goes on in hotter water. 
water. Yeah. So we're hoping to get somebody to replicate our study. And that's one of the things we're looking to is getting somebody to replicate our study with like somewhere with really warm water. Um, and we, um, but so anyways, we have these things and then you go down and actually the gut hooks weren't the worst. If you hit the gills, like oh, that, that was it. That it was, was like, yeah, it was like 50 to 88%, like 90. Or like yeah, it's such a with, with the circle the hooks, did you hit the gills often? Well, we, definitely the J hooks, I would think, right? And actually what we found with the, with the circle hooks is that we would have a lot of lip hooked fish yep. that would be pumping blood. Not a lot, but enough. And what we think happened there is that you had a gut, you know, just caught part of the gut or down low, and then it pulled. And as it pulled, it hit the gills, and then, got the and then it got the lip. Because yeah. it's doing what it's supposed to do. It's getting the lip in the end. Mm-hmm. But as it's going through that deep, through the mouth and out, it was hitting the gills. Matt and I were talking about that earlier before you showed up, how, like, sometimes I feel like, you know, we might have a fish gut hooked in, in the stomach. And then, you know, with that soft tissue, sometimes I could see my client's rod tips, you know. I could see it just come loose real quick. I'm like, oh, no, we lost. And like, oh, no, I got it. So I think it might rip, come back and get in the corner. So I think that's also a part of what might be happening as well. That's exactly what we're thinking. And I also think most of the fish that we probably lose, like mid-fight on a circle hook, are probably fish that were gut hooked and that same thing happened. Because once you get it in the corner of the jaw, man, like it's not coming out unless unless it's not in there too good and you have some slack line. Yeah, Yeah, it's it's definitely hard. That's another nice thing, especially for you guys as charter captains, that if you can get somebody hooked up, Oh, yeah, circle hook. It's probably sticking. It's probably sticking. Yeah, yeah. yeah they it, can be hot enough to get out when you get get the fish on the boat. Never mind. Yeah, if you have the perfect hinge set, it's awesome. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's great. Yeah. So, um, so that was the cool part about it is that now, um, getting back to that Diodati study, where one of our goals for the long term has always been to come up with a coast uh, coast wide estimate of mortality that we can combine with all this information Matt was talking about at the very beginning of the podcast, right? So we're doing a citizen science project for the next two years. And uh, I'll, I'll ask you to put up the slide with everything. It has a QR code so people can scan it online. If you're looking online, you'll be able to hopefully now scan the uh, QR code. Did you hear that, guys? You can Do be it part now. of this study. Be part yeah. of this study. And you um, get a bunch of cool stuff. It looks like yep, you're giving yep, out, too. Yep. So we're going to give out to everybody who does it. You're going to get a thir- uh, tape measure. You're going to get a stopwatch. And you're going to get a thermometer. So you can record some of these things, and we will send you instructions and a data sheet to fill out. Um, there's going to be online entry, or you can just take a picture of this and email it to us. Okay. Um, my kids phone, are going to love this. From your phone. Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. Have your kids record it. Oh, there you that would go. be really yeah, – that's a great awesome. idea, Dan. Yeah. <laughs> and then when you send your first uh, entry in, you will get a free pair of pliers. Ooh, Dankos. Yep, I got a pair Dankos. of Dankos. Yep. So Very we get a free nice. pair of pliers. Um and we're hoping to get a lot. We've had a lot of interest. I've, I've talked about this very briefly, and, and one of our colleagues has talked about it briefly, and we're already hearing back from a lot of people. Um, if you're not in Massachusetts and you're watching this and you want to do it, that's fine, too. Um, anybody can sign up. Uh, we're going to be doing weekly giveaways of the new uh, Shimano Spheros broad reel combo. Oh, nice. Oh, wow. Those are really nice reels for yeah, the price, man. They knocked it out of the park. Yeah. I'm actually yeah. going to pick a couple up next week, to be honest with you. Nice. Yeah, yeah, they won, yeah, it won that new best product, iCast. Oh, did so, it? Yeah, the yeah. Combo, so, so that's the combo what, with, the, with the Shimano rod. I'm, gonna, yeah, I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm just going to get the reel, but you guys are doing the rod and it's reel. It's a combo combo. rod reel. Sick. Yeah, 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 rod reel combo. And so. that's just if you enter this, you're so you part go, of the raffle? It's going to be weekly. And so, you know, you talk. I've been talking. No, no, for like, no, no. no, no, you talk. I've been talking for 40 minutes. I can take a break and have a drink. You talk. So it's a, yeah, so we'll have a weekly winner. Uh, and and it, it doesn't matter how many fish you enter, you get a single. So we don't want anyone to, you know, 
falsify data, not that we believe anyone would, but the idea is you get, if you put in a report. Wait a minute, we're talking about fishermen, all right? Listen, (laughs) I'm not going to, I won't assume anything, but, uh, you know, the idea is that if you put in a report, you are entered in that week's drawing. And we'll give, we're going to give away a combo every week. Wow. Um, I think beginning in June, and once we run out of combos, I think we're going to have probably some potentially some glasses, sunglasses, good sunglasses to nice. also, you know, send out. Um, so, you know, we're going to have awards. We're going to update our, our social media and our website to show kind of who's been winning, uh, really try to promote it. And so the idea here is we want contribution from our anglers, right? We want private anglers, you know, can be charter customers, whoever wants to contribute, um, you know, complete, we want a complete set of data. You don't, um, you know, you'll see on the data sheet what's there. Um, and, you're going to get this QR code is going to link you to sign up. You're going to get a kit in the mail, right? So when you sign up, you're going to put some information into our form. Uh, then we'll, we'll probably wait until getting a little closer to the season and we'll send out all these packets to anglers. Um, and as Ben explained, what's going to be in the kit, uh, you'll take a look at the instructions and have the data sheet with you out while you're fishing uh, and be able to report uh, your some of your catch. And, and we're going to get a lot of information. So we're really looking at, trying to get information on artificial uh, lures. So all different types. And so there's um, some instructions there about measuring the lure. Oh, great. So this isn't necessarily a circle hook study. No, 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 no we're, we're, yeah, sorry, yeah. I didn't articulate so that. No, that's fine. We'll still take data if people want to, you know, put give us data on bait, um, yeah. live or dead, uh, using circle hooks. Um, we will take it. It's not going to, we're not going to say yeah, no to gotcha. data. But the idea is to gather more information now on artificials. And so... Any artificial, um, we're gonna we're gonna ask for hook points. So the number of hooks on it, whether they're single hooks or treble hooks, uh, the size of that lure um, to the closest inch. Uh, we're gonna want you know some information on that. Um, but it's all there on the data sheet, and you know yeah. with that, you know you'll be able to essentially give us the information we need to feed it into the model to figure out uh, with pretty good precision uh, what percentage of those fish are going to are going to live or die yeah, right gotcha. so okay yep and we're going to be at the same time be able to um, work in some ways to survey our anglers better we're going to be working with the mrip data yep. um so that we can expand this out to our coverage of all massachusetts anglers and come up with a, a real mortality estimate uh there is we i mean if, if you are a, a live bait or dead bait fisherman we do have a category for that so chris you pointed out how bad our hooks were and how much better your hook was i did so, not so, say so, such <laughs> a thing we were just talking about it <laughs> but i think i think yeah. one of the things actually well actually keep going with you going then we'll talk about the circle hooks that yeah. we were talking yeah, about so earlier. you know and part of it also is we're going to do some some charter boat trips as well so uh we are chartering boats throughout the state, uh, you know, utilizing the expertise of some of our charter captains throughout the state to get out on some trips and have captains put us on fish using artificials. So, um, and you know, it, it kind of works in multiple ways because we're going to also hopefully push the, our ideas and, and kind of part of the study out to those charter captains in hopes that they'll continue to, you know, push this out to people and uh, spread the word on this study, right? So we yeah. can continue to get more. Does and this more study data. have a specific name? So if like I'm listening to this right now, I just want to Google it. What like what could I Google? It's a great question. So I, I, we I like have the, a short. Um, we have a short URL now, I believe, which is a uh, striper. It's mass.gov. Uh, forward slash striper. Forward slash striper, I believe. All right, yeah. mass.gov. Forward slash striper. Yeah. But I mean, yeah, the QR code we're gonna post yeah. would be the easiest way to get you to the site. Yeah. And then yeah. um, you know, and if you if you go to the Marine Fisheries website and you search 
Stripe Bass Research. Um, it's going to, you know, that's probably and, the easiest way to get to the page that will direct you to. And to, I think that we're going to have on the DMF page, you know, although we recognize that our page can be difficult to navigate sometimes, I think one of the initial pictures you see right on that landing page, if you go to DMF, bass.gov, refisheries, it's going to be a link to this stuff. Are you guys going to be at the Plum Island Surfcaster show in a couple weeks? Yes, I'll be there next two uh, seconds. And this is something that somebody could talk yeah, to so, you about? Yep, yep. So we're gonna have, local? Yep, we're going to have postcards. Uh, we'll have a little poster up of it, and I'll be talking about it. So I'll have the kit with me um, both this weekend at the Rhode Island Saltwater Show, uh, which... This will be Sunday. This, we're this airing is, the yep, last day that's right, right now. But, yeah. you know, this, this but, information will be out there um, starting this coming weekend, and it will be available. I'll have information at the Plum Island Surfcasters show that so following weekend. That's a new report. Do you remember the date on that? What are the dates? Saturday the 18th. Is it the 18th? Correct. Okay, so Saturday the 18th, these guys will be here. If you guys are interested, or uh, you want to learn more about it face-to-face, see the stuff that they got for you, the forms that you have to fill out or where to go, uh, come check that out, the Plum Island Surfcasters show at the Hope Church and New Report. And then are you guys going to be at ours on April 29th as well? At yes. the Anglers Expo? Yes. All right. So then our Mouse of the Merrimack Anglers Expo is going to be April 29th. It's a Saturday. And um, we're going to have these guys down there working that, too. Wait, and that's is that, a, is that at the Elks? It will be at the Elks in Newbury Newport. Newport. Yeah, yeah, back at the Elks. Excellent. Classing it up. <laughs> it was too classy last year, you know? Yeah, Actually, too, it was too fancy. Offset the church. What? Offset the church. Yeah, offset the church, right? Yeah. We're going in a different direction. Yeah. I mean, let's be honest. Anywhere there's fishing stuff, it is church, right? Yeah, I know. Excellent. All right. And we are going to do, um, internally, we're going to continue to do that, some more circle hook work this summer uh, off our own vessels to try and keep nailing down on that. So Yeah, so we'll awesome. be asking you, you know, folks like you and other yeah. captains, other anglers, what, you know, is there a hook you think, you know, has a is more effective at, at catching you know, stripers in the mouth. Currently, right now, when I'm my overall like day to day hook that I'm using with you know tinker mackerel to a little bit bigger mackerel, medium mackerel, um, I'm using a Mustad. I think it's a three three nine one BN. Um, I believe that's the skew number. All right, but basically, it's a one X wire. It's a thin wire. It's a it's a um, non offset circle hook. Um, it's got a straight short shank. It, I don't like the octopus style where the eye bends back. I mean, I do like it, but you have to snell your hooks really to get them the most effect out of that, in my opinion. And I just don't trust my snells to tie it really quick when I'm tying a bunch of them on the boat with my hands all shitty with bait and stuff. So I know I can just take my regular hook and just do a uni knot and be done with it. And uh, I've, I fish Gamagatsus. The owners are nice, but, you know, when I'm going through 150, 200 hooks a year, you know, those get a little pricey and they don't do, like, bulk packs. So I've settled on that must-add the last few years, that 8-aught. You know, I use 10-aughts for pogies, and I do 6-aughts when I'm, you know, chumming, chunking, things of that nature. Um, the reason why I like the must-adds is, and I don't know if this means anything to be honest with you but i like it because i like the wider gap they definitely have a wider gap than the same size gamagatsu so i used gamagatsu's before but i felt like a i was pulling a lot of hooks on them for whatever reason i felt like we pulled a lot i felt like um a lot of the times the hooks buried back on the mackerel when we were drifting them so like that tip goes into the snout um i mean that's still an issue with the mustangs but doesn't seem to be as bad and um and I've actually had a couple of the Gama Gops snap. That, that's probably the real the real reason. I had like five or six of them snap throughout Break a couple hook. summers. So I was just like, yeah, I'm done with that. 
Um, actually, I think I had a mustad snap this year. Really? Two years ago. Two years ago on the flats. Yeah. Um, but that was the only one. Um, I I like the shorter shank, but a seven-knot Gamagansu circle hook, if somebody's looking to switch, is pretty much the same overall size as the Mustad 8-knot. So Mustads run a little small, but the gap is a little is wider on the on the Mustad. The one you're using. I would say it's probably about 10% wider. Yeah. And it just seems I get a better hook set in the corner of the jaw with that. Yeah, I will say a cool part of the study that we've done here is that um, when you look at the data sheet, if you do use a live uh, uh, circle hook, yeah, where there's a little box that we're asking people to take a, you know, put that hook in that box and take the picture, and that way we can automatically generate all of the stats the measurement, on the, the hook. Oh, that's yeah. all the measurements. Yeah. Yeah. We have the bo- we know how big that box is, so all, like, for all the hooks people send in, we'll be able to like the gap width is this, the shank length is that, like this is like the size of the overall curve. Like, yeah, and like I was yeah. telling, I was telling Matt earlier, I got to get a look at them because in the catalog they make look amazing. And I talked to a guy at the boat show, the rep for a BKK, um, and they look like they have a super wide gap for the for the size. And they and we were just going looking at the pictures, and we noticed that the point was different. You know, the mustads and the gamagatsus are angled off a little bit, where these ones are more definite ninety degree point and i wonder if that would have a better reaction in terms of snagging like a stomach or or a gill or something like that so i don't know all remains to be seen i got to see him in person and give him a shot first but they they look like all their other hooks i've been really impressed with so we'll be looking forward for, to your data coming in to yeah. uh yeah we'll to, be sending them in you're going to be sending me zeros every week yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh all right so can we move off the stripers a little bit and talk about macro because this is what everyone's going to be waiting to hear. I'd love to talk about macro. the new macro regulations for 2023. Walk us through it. What do okay. we got? So recreational, it's a 20 fish per person possession limit. Live or dead. Correct. So yeah. So if you've got if you've got dead macro in the cooler and you have li- they count towards your total possession limit. And so it's per person. Um, and so if you're on a boat with three anglers, it's 60 mackerel total. Dead or alive. Dead or alive. Correct. Okay. Um, so that's the recreational. The commercial, um, so if you're commercial fishing, you can ha- you, you don't have to buy anything additional if you, if you follow that 20 per person rule. So if, if you're not over that, you can also, you know, not do anything different, but you have to follow that 20 per person rule. So if I'm a commercial bass fisherman and I do not have my commercial mackerel and it's, I can only fish with 20 mackerel in my libel at once. That's like the open access permit. Okay. So now if you're, if you're going to have, if you're going to be commercially fishing and have more than 20 per person. So if you're two guys, going out commercial bass fishing and you want to have more than 40 mackerel, you would need to have the striped bass endorsement, which can be added on to your commercial permit. The mackerel endorsement. What did I say? Striper. Sorry. I, yeah. Atlantic mackerel. See, it's confusing. <laughs> this is no, why we I needed you on. No, you're right. <laughs> Thank you for catching me. Atlantic mackerel endorsement. And that's uh, an additional $30, I think, on your state permit. Yeah. Um, yeah. That just, you know, and you do have to report, you know, you're going to report all those mackerel utilized. Um, whether you sell them or not. Correct. So okay. that's, you know, whether you're using for personal use, selling them. Um, whatever you do, you do have to report those mackerel. And that's something I think that has been overlooked 
over the years. You know, even folks that were supposed to be reporting mackerel at times potentially yeah. didn't. Mm -hmm. um, and in conversations, I've heard that that's was uh, there even a happened. commercial mackerel permit for anglers before? Uh, there's been there's federal commercial. Oh, the fed one. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's um, right. That's right. But I mean, technically, if you're you know if you have a federal permit and you're submitting vessel trip reports. Every fish you catch should be on that report, Correct. right? Yeah. Including the bait. So, um, but so that's the difference. Now, I you have questions about those at all that I did. I don't, so know, with, I don't know how clear with my the mackerel endorsement on, yep. on the commercial permit, there's no limit to how many mackerel you have. You just have to report the the mackerel that you catch. Correct. Now, the, okay. the, the you know, so this ties into like you also have to think about the idea of not mixing trips. And this yeah. is something to think about if you're a recreational angler and a commercial angler, right? So if yep. you're going to be out on a, um, so, you know, so an example is so a charter boat and, and Chris, you and I have talked about this in the past. We have talked about this multiple Sometimes times. Sometimes <laughs> charter captains like to go out and catch mackerel before a trip, right? And so if you were to go out before your trips for the day and catch your mackerel, you would have to, if you were going to have more than 20 on the boat, um, while you're by yourself, you'd have to have that mackerel endorsement. You then have to come in and, you know, before your charter, um, figure out. And then when you go to go out on your charter, you can only have that total number of how many costs. So you can't. So if I go, so just for people, if I go out and catch a hundred mackerel and I'm supposed to have four guys plus me on the boat. So right. that would be my hundred mackerel 20 times five, right. but only three show up. So now there's four of us. So now I got to dump 20 mackerel. Correct. Correct. Okay. Yeah. So on the other side of that, right? So I'm not taking I'm not taking people out. Wait, before uh, I go, all right, go ahead. I'm, I'm just so now. As what do you suggest? All right. For for me to do for someone like me because I just thought about this. So I have 20 mackerel. My boat is in the Merrimack River. It's low tide. So I got my 20 that I got to get rid out rid of. Do I throw them in the water or do I put them in my truck on ice and go sell those later? You know what I'm saying? Now, like, what do you suggest? Are you suggesting that letting them go in the river may just kill them? It probably would because I took a picture or a video of a girl <laughs> who caught mackerel Jordan on my boat this year. <laughs> and she, yeah, mackerel Jordan. Like it was, it. She wanted to let mackerel Jordan live. <laughs> so she threw mackerel Jordan out in the middle of the river. And Matt just said, Oh, that ain't gonna go too far. I have the receipt, buddy. <laughs> what did you say? You wrote. You t you wrote. I go. Oh, he ain't gonna make it too far because I threw it out in the river. <laughs> you crushed the girl's dream. She's sorry, by the way. <laughs> hey, just keeping it real, you know. <laughs> no, it was just too funny. It depends. I don't know. What, no. what time of year was it? Not the I first time you July -ish. Yeah, yeah, so if a commercial bass fisherman goes out, <laughs> yep. right, and then it, let's say it's one guy like myself and I catch 80 mackerel and I have them in my live well and my intention is to commercial fish for bass, you know, and then I catch, you know, the day's weaning on and I catch a nice slot fish, I decide to keep it, it immediately becomes illegal because I can no longer fish. I think all those mackerel got to go. Well, so saying you do not catch a commercial striper correct. and you want to keep a slot yeah. for yourself. Like, you're like, shit, I sucked, but this is my last fish. I'm just going to take But you're going to turn off. it into a recreational trip? Yes. I mean, yeah. You'd, yeah. So the, in theory, you would just want to get rid of all those mackerel, right? Yeah. But I mean, technically, yeah, you're, you would be, if you had the mackerel on board, you would be out of compliance, right? You'd, yep. you'd, <laughs> um, so there's, yeah, I mean, there's going to be lots of questions. Um, it's also going to somewhat be at the discretion of, whichever officer is you know yeah of course yeah. gonna board and talk to you um and it's 
there's probably no perfect answer to every situation, but we've we've tried to cover most most things. And you know, I think if people have questions, they're they're more than welcome to call me in Gloucester or or the office in Gloucester. And and uh, yeah, no, I think it's great that it was just it was just taken into consideration for commercial bass fishermen because it is such a you know an important bait, and uh, not everybody operates with a crew to catch them. So to have the ability in one way or another to hold more mackerel in your live well. Um, yeah, so and, thank, and, thank tuna, and tuna yeah. fishermen too. So yeah. that's yeah. You know, I don't didn't want to get into too much federal. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, like if you go offshore into federal waters and you, it's the same thing. So it's a twenty fish um, rec limit, and it's kind of the same way commercially. So if you're going to have more than twenty per person, you would need to have the open access uh, squid mackerel butterfish permit through through Garfo, the okay. uh, yeah, NOAA yeah. office. So. Talk to them. So yeah, that's it's not our that that would be talk. Is, you should yeah. uh, is mackerel commercial fishing seven days a week. Uh, there is no yeah right. There's no closed okay. day on mackerel. and no limit. Uh, I, that's a great question. I don't think. I don't think we have a limit, uh, but I have to look. I, I can check. So an overall quota. So um, just yeah. So through the reporting, yeah, there's, yeah, a, fe- yeah, there's a federal there's a federal quota. Limit. I don't yeah. think we have a state quota. Okay. So just just hear me out. I'm just thinking out loud now, sure. okay? So the mackerel stocks are, are low or there's an issue. And we'll talk I know exactly. I know what they said at the meetings and stuff. We'll talk about the specifics of it in a minute. But just we're getting rigs because there's a situation with mackerel, correct? Sure, absolutely. But now we're making it commercial so where now people can actually legally sell them. Like, don't you think the effort now for people that are going to go out and try to, like, get a shitload of mackerel to pay for the gas for the day to go? Well, you could commercially sell mackerel before, though, wasn't it? Yeah, that's what Matt was saying. There's plenty of people who were selling to places, like, whether that's a bait shop or whatever else that, but like under the table or like, was there like a permit to sell? We didn't have to. So you had to have a commercial permit, but we didn't have a specific endorsement. Oh, gotcha. Okay. So So if you had like a a state commercial permit that included you for selling mackerel. Correct. Yeah. Okay. So now here's my other thing. How many people now who never got into commercial striper fishing for what I say, but they're really good wreck anglers and they want to be able to fish. You know, a lot of guys can go out there by themselves and catch 30, 40 stripers. I mean, 20 mackerel is not going to be enough. So now they're going to get the commercial mackerel permit, right, with the endorsement. And they're going to, oh, I'll get the extra 30 bucks for the striper endorsement. Now are you going to unintentionally have more people trying to sell stripers? You know what I'm saying? Well, it's a quota fishery. Um, yeah, that's and, true, too. You know, that's true, It's too. a quota fishery. Uh, we'd, it'd be hard to think about too many more people coming on just for that. Yeah. And I, mean, it, I, I think the reason there is a, a striper commercial fishery still in Massachusetts is because it's our kind of last open entry yeah. fishery, and, and we're trying to maintain that for people that want to do it. Fair enough. Um, both, yeah. both as you know, to you know, people who want to do it just because they want to make money for their hobby, and that's also it's a way for I'm, I'm sure you guys know young guys who start out straight bass fishing and end up owning a lobster boat or end up chartering or mm-hmm. doing something else. You know, that's the way you, you get a into ga- it. It's a gateway. It's a gateway. So that's what we hope. Yeah, yeah that's sure. what we really hope. Um, so, yeah, absolutely. I um, mean, and, and actually, as of this point, if you haven't gotten your striper, yeah, you commercial yeah, permit, master can anyway. So, <laughs> so yeah. all right, that, yeah. that was my, yeah. that was yeah, my next question. So, say if I'm just listening to this podcast right now, and I'm one of those people that use a lot of mackerel, can I still? And I don't have a commercial striper permit. Can I still go get the commercial permit with the mackerel endorsement? Or to, you can get a commercial permit with you, a mackerel endorsement, but you can't have stripers. 
You can't, you you can't mix trips, right? So this is the key to think about, right? So you No, no, no. But I'm just saying as in buying the permit. You can still go out you and can get, still a go get a macro. I can macro. still get a macro permit. So yes. it would just be your, what is it, $130 plus the $30 yeah, you can macro even, endorsement? you can even just get the rod and reel permit. But yeah, there's, there's I think that's a couple what it different is. combinations. Yeah, it's like 100 bucks and then plus the yeah. 30 or something. Correct. Yeah. yeah, correct. So, but you just, now you, if you get it at this point in time, by the time people listen to this podcast, you cannot have the Striper endorsement. So just macro. Right. If you don't already have Striper, you're not going to get it yep. Um, yep. until next year. Uh, but yeah, you could still get the macro. Correct. Okay. Good. All right. So I want to make sure. Um, all right. So how'd you guys come, how, how was the science for the macro regs? How did that go down? Like, how did you figure out what, what are the issues? Well, Why do we have the changes? Well, we didn't figure it out. Yeah. But, but I, I think this, it's hard. I mean, it is really hard. I mean, I, I think that, you know, we all fish and we all go out and we depend on mackerel. And the last couple of years, we've seen a lot of mackerel in a lot of the places we fish. So it's really, in Massachusetts, it's really, really easy to say, what are these guys talking about? They have no idea what they're talking about. They don't go out in the water. They don't see the mackerel. And there's two big parts of this that you just wouldn't see if you're in Massachusetts. Or, or one of them you wouldn't know, even though you are seeing it, and one of them you don't see. And so what you don't see is everywhere else. And so there's long-standing surveys for all these fish that cover all the seasons. They cover, you know, get a Canadian Maritimes down, all down the entire East Coast. So that's really all this data is coming from. And there's a real clear signal from the 60s to now of a slight northward shift in both larvae and eggs where those are found a, a reduction in the amount of larvae and eggs and then also a contraction so it shifted north but that shifting on the south end is not matched by how far they moved in the north right so it's gotten smaller both for eggs and larvae there's less of them but it does happen that the epicenter now of where all those legs and eggs and larvae are especially the larvae like the young fish the, like the, they're going to develop into like our tinkers is like central gulf of maine off of massachusetts it's, mm. it's like massachusetts bay cape Ann. like we are at the very epicenter of where that is yeah where it used to be mid-atlantic yeah right? now like, it's shifted so it, it was that whole thing was centralized in the mid-atlantic it was, or was it more it was spread big, out it was bigger and it was okay. over like south of cape cod mid-atlantic and now it's like especially for the larvae it is the the center of that they're like the whole distribution is still a little bigger but the center that real mass of it is like I cape shifted. cod bay right and it's it's so like we're at the absolute center of it what would you what do you guys just think in either in your opinion or through scientific data what do you think the cause of that was that centralization of the larva i mean it's probably a it's probably a climate shift i yeah. would think there's, i, I, I yeah. would guess you know decadal time scale thing we there's a i, I am not a mackerel scientist no, i'm no, just no. i've just seen know enough to see the data and, and try and communicate it to people but yeah it's, there's a lot of these species um you know hake whiting you know whiting um almost every species we look at there's been a northward shift river herring yeah. uh we're, I, I personally think we're starting to see that with striped bass and all the bad years in the Chesapeake. That's, I mean, hopefully we start seeing some rain. seems like last year, just a few miles north of us, was probably one of the better years, striper-wise, yeah. that they've ever had. Yeah, but even in the spawning recruitment and everything yeah. like that. So it's all, almost every fish they've looked at, they've seen a northward change in the distribution, both of adults and juveniles. Um, you know, I think we were talking about like weird catches before the podcast. I, two years ago, I might, like I said, my boat's on the Parker River, and somebody who worked there came up to me and had a fish about, you know, like that long. Yeah. And he's like, What is this? I'm like, Well, that's a one year old black sea bass. Yeah. And he had to caught it in an eel pot right off the end of the dock, yeah. the Parker River, you know? And so these fish are all marching northward. 
Um, you've seen black sea bass, fluke. You know, we're kind of, we caught a keeper fluke a couple of years ago. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and you know, not to so, get too far off macro, but one of the issues too is there's yeah, so, like a truncated age yeah, class. That's what I was going to go. So, yeah. So, we talked about like what we, we yeah. So, that's the stuff you can't see because you're just seeing what's in front of you. But what you're actually seeing, but you don't know you're seeing, is that the, the age structure has changed a ton in these fish. And the reason you don't realize it is they have really interesting growth patterns where mackerel basically hit max growth, like as big as they're close to as big as they're going to get by six or seven years old, but they can live to 20 plus. Oh, yeah. So they don't keep so, growing. So honestly, the, the difference in like when you take oh, there's variation in everything. Right. But when you like plot the mean growth yeah. and like and like how big a fish is, there's a one inch difference between a, a seven year old and a, and a 18 year old. Interesting. So in looking at the age structure by like aging the Yeah, so when we fish. actually age yeah. the fish, what's happened is that we, in the past, we had fish up to 18, 20 years old. In the past 10 years, there's like no fish that is older than five. Okay, so size-wise, it, it isn't it really... Looks like, it looks like you still have really big mackerel, but they're not old. But they're not old. So they're, the size isn't dictating the age, like, yeah, it would, like maybe and, a striper and, overall. And so what that means is yeah. if you have like, there's less fish, A, there's less, part of the, there's less fish out there. It's not like you, you, you know, so you have all those old age classes that used to be part of the population, and it just looked like you had a ton of old fish there. But so we have less fish overall, but it also means that like year to year, when you only have a couple of years of like worth of fish that can spawn, when you have a bad year, it doesn't get absorbed. Like you can think about all those other ear classes that are out there as like shocks, shock absorbers for bad environmental conditions where you're going to have a bad year, but it's okay. Cause you're going to make it up the next year. And these fish are living to 20 years. So they're spawning 15, 16, 17 times through their life. Now they're spawning three times, four times in their life. And if you have a bad year, it doesn't get made up down the line. Yeah. So, it, so that's the other big part that people don't see. You're seeing it, but you don't know what you're looking at. There's just none of these old fish left and that's how you really some of the same thing it's the same thing we're looking at with straight bass right now we're living on the 2015 year classes it's in the slot now that's in the slot yeah man. That's, <laughs> yeah that was the one thing about the slot i was like man in a year or two these fish that big class is going to be right in that wheelhouse yeah now so it some, is and some of the fish were in the slot last year yeah, yeah so we're probably just barely in there right you know, yep. the harvest was was pretty large last yeah. year and so that was the 2015 so it's about eight years before they get into that slot size 28 inch yeah 29 inch range yep and so, and I mean, it's the same thing with the with the tuna. You were talking about how you guys used to run and gun for you know those, the footballs. We and had those, that those, one year yeah. class that just kept getting bigger and like nothing yeah, no, replaced no, it. Yeah, <laughs> thankfully there was the, that, oh, was a two, so that was a two thousand three year class. The two thousand six was okay, but like there's some been there's been some more. Like you said, we just got these good footballs. But it's like yeah, really like when you think about it, to some degree, New England has been fishing on this same year class of bluefin yeah. tuna for like fifteen years. Yeah, yeah. You know, now they're one hundred and five, one hundred and ten inches. And it's cool, but you you know got to hope there's more coming. Yeah, and uh, so it's a, that's it's, I think that's just way other people can relate. Like you don't think about it with mackerel, but that's the same thing that's coming. Is you got to hope that there's more good year classes coming. Because if you have then if you have two bad year classes in a row, there's nothing to absorb it. Or if you have two out of three bad years. I wish somebody earlier at the meetings that I went to explained the mackerel age thing better than to, to better to me like you guys just did because it, they just kept saying size. Yeah, and it's like yeah, there. Were... So the fact that the age is different than the size is, yeah, is definitely a, a different driving point home that makes a little bit more sense. It's now. never easy to explain things to different groups, you know, to groups. Yeah. Oh yeah, and so I, you know, you, it's tough to fault anyone who's trying to present data yeah, sometimes. For sure. But yeah. it's you know, this is a great way to do it too. Like I mean, we're gonna have a real conversation exactly about what's going yep. on as opposed yeah. to when you know those meetings. It's like. I mean, you can be on the. You guys have gone on one side. I've been on both sides. It's like, yeah. dude, it's, those meetings are brutal. They're brutal, yeah. yeah. And they're it's brutal. like, and like, it, like 
it's tough. I mean, I I would be lying if I didn't say that at times when I've watched meetings on the internet or wherever, like been in the crowd, I've been like, well, that could have been handled better. Yeah. Like you're sitting there being like, man. On I, both sides. Yeah, you know, that's, what, you know, sides, that's what I'm saying. Sure. Like, even that's, that's what I'm trying to say. Yeah. It's like both ways. You can always think of things could be handled better. Um, but it, it's just a really, it's, I think just because of what it is, sometimes by nature, especially if it's not good news, it can be kind of a confrontational antagonistic relationship when it doesn't have to be. Yeah. So, anyways, that's... Well, since we're talking about regulations and stuff... Oh, so let's uh, talk about fish size. How about those 47 to 50-inch tuna, though? <laughs> Dude, let's keep those coming, man. That's my favorite. That's my like favorite. a million of them That now. 45 to 55-inch tuna, oh, those are the best. Those are good fish. Those, those are, are a lot best. of fun. Yeah. <laughs> um, and make sure if you're catching those, you're reporting that you're catching them. Correct. Oh, yeah, my God. Yeah. Data to, yeah. to NOAA, right? HMS that's correct. Yeah. Yep. Um, all right, so since we put in the new striper, the striper rules, the slot, what are we going on, year three or four with that? I think this is year three. three. Year three? Yeah. Have you guys seen any of the data in terms of that? Um, do you think that's been helpful? Or is it too soon to tell? <laughs> that's a great question. Uh, I, don't know that, I don't know that we're prepared to answer it today. But, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, it's something that is, is something to think about. I mean, we definitely have more fish entering the slot there were some fish in the slot and the harvest numbers were up last year coast wide. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, you know, I, I would guess we're going to see uh, some, a lot of fish harvested this year as well. With I more of this those is probably going to be 2015 entering the slot. So, yeah. yeah. I mean, that happened. And what, at what point do you shift the, do you shift the slot size? That's a good question. Um, yeah. I mean, the, I, I think that it's, there's a lot of difficulties with that. And I, I'm not going to talk about policy, but just from like the technical trying to understand where it's going to go. Um, so yeah, it depends on effort because like we talked about a lot mm -hmm. of that's post, a lot of that mortality is post-release mortality. And we've still maintained, you know, we had high effort during COVID because everybody could go fishing. We've seen a maintenance that has dropped off our, our revenue, our license sales have dropped off since COVID some. And I think that's a coast wide trend, yep. but our um, efforts still pretty high. Um, we, I think that I believe that last year, um, the last time they looked at, F at fishing mortality. It wasn't as bad as they thought it would be, but we have, as, my, as Matt was saying, we still haven't gotten all the numbers and run it through the model to see what that, like right. that effort for this past fishing year, the 2022 fishing year was going to result for, for F. So we're really looking at 2021 F. So we don't know what 2022 is yeah. going to look at um, for that fishing mortality. And then when there was one, Oh, when we talk about switching, I mean, we all, how old are you guys? 35, 37. Okay, so I'm 43. So you guys are slightly younger. Matt's my age, too. 43, right? yeah. Yeah, 43. So, um, you know, I, when I grew up, like, and you guys might have started fishing young to remember this, like, there were very, very few straight bass. And yeah. No keepers. You didn't catch Yeah, definitely. Bass. I know my father was telling me he never caught a striper until I was, like, seven or eight. Right. When I caught my first one. So that's when we started getting saltwater fishing because he, he always saltwater fish for bluefish. Right. You know, never, yep. no stripers around. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I grew up bluefish fishing and then all of a sudden it's like oh wow there's stripers around you can start catching stripers again and everything else um and so you know we, it's been a long period of time where we had like two at 28 and like that, that there's consistency it was coast-wide yeah like and and people there's been a lot of upheaval in our regulations and i think that for the most part and i do think it makes sense for, from getting anglers all on board is that for right now it seems like there's a a, a kind of a wide acceptance among the states to try and make uniform regulations 
and have them stick for a little while unless yeah. it, unless it's going to be truly problematic and yeah, then you're going to yeah. have to make a chance. I mean, it, it makes make sense too. They're the same fish. They're traveling up and down the coast. You right. Know? Yeah. So right. I remember too, like, uh, I think it was Maine, Maine, right? They did like a smaller slot and then like an over 32 a tro- or whatever. A trophy yeah, size. A trophy yeah. size. Yeah. Yep. And that went, that ran for a while. And um, I don't know, I guess when you say that, like when you have this slot fish, 28 to less than, less than 35, that's kind of like the wheelhouse for everyone that's harvesting fish up and down the coast. Like, why would why would the states want to do like the same thing if you can actually change things in specific states to protect the species more? Yeah, then I mean, again, you're getting into policy things. We we don't make any decisions about that, or really, uh, we just kind of. At my position right now, I'm, I'm providing data to go in. Yeah, for um, sure. I know that some of the concerns are. Uh, you know, uh, accessibility because okay. for like guys like who are on boats, you can, it's a little easier to catch this bigger fish. So they didn't want to make it too big, like narrow Correct. this lot down and make it really hard for shore fishers to get to the fish, which I think is a legitimate thing. They also ran a lot of modeling at different sizes and trying to understand, uh, they did a lot, a lot of work to understand how that, um, slot would work compared to like going back to how it was okay. when it first opened back up and it was like one at 36. 36. Yeah. So they, 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 they looked at all those situations and tried to figure out what would happen. And, and this slot was fairly equivalent to that. Okay. Um, so that's when they made those decisions a few years ago. That's what they were looking at, but it's a great question. And there was some understanding of what the effort would be with fish with a size of 20, you know, we yeah. had a size of 28, and, and and greater, right? Yep. So there was some idea based on the data we had of what the effort would be um, on the slot, right? So there was some we had some info because of having regulations where, with fish twenty eight and larger mm-hmm. um, of where you know where things were going to land. So there was yeah. some ways to analyze that, and that's why the slot was chosen. And again, okay. like there's that free pass. It's not a free pass if you make that if you bump up or narrow that slot because there's still the post release mortality yeah. involved with it. Yeah. So, right. Um, it's uh, so many variables. It's, it gets complicated. <laughs> well, it's wild. It's like yeah. just think about we talk about all the time when you're going to leave the dock and how many variables that go into planning your trip. Now, think about the like just where they're going to be and what you're going to use for bait. I mean, there's a reason for the variables for their population too. It works the same way. Mm-hmm. You know, the way they're traveling, what they're eating, what's happening in their environment. So, yeah. I don't know. I mean, hopefully, listeners. I mean, I think there's a lot of times you get to these meetings, you think that you know, you, you say, "Well, why didn't they present it a different way? They didn't think about this. They didn't think about that." Like I was saying, um, you know, Matt, myself, other people who are biologists at the division, we don't make those decisions and there's a lot of things that go into decision making with fisheries but i think that sometimes there's a perception that data doesn't go in or like we like there people don't know what's happening or there's not good ideas of what's happening hopefully your listeners get an idea that we're doing a lot of work and we're trying to feed a lot of data into this that's going to apply to making those decisions yeah well i think that's exactly why we wanted to bring you in here i remember when we brought matt in last year i'm like listen i just want to talk because like i think a lot of people get these letters and, and like that explains them the regulations and first of all it feels like for a lot of people you need a lawyer just to go through it and figure out what the hell you need to do to catch a fish you know and, and, I'll, and I'll tell you chris i've brought that to the attention of the division because yeah. i think that's important i think that you know that kind of feedback is important you know if we if we're putting things out there that aren't in in language that's understandable by everybody uh, for everyone uh, it's 
uh, we're not we're not effectively doing it right yeah. so you know it can be there can be a letter or there can be a regulation set and have this jargon that maybe not everyone can the dummy letter you know but, set yeah, it to the, the trial we need say, it then, <laughs> literally name it fishing regulations for dummies but then yeah. We, yeah then we need someone to be able to kind of take and distill that down so yeah. that everybody you know different groups can understand like, it there's a little bullet points or something yeah like we're that. working on that and yeah. that's not not only you know, in terms of the way it's written in language form, but also, you know, maybe the language it's written in, right? So we're working yeah. on different things like that so that, you know, yep. everyone can hopefully understand our, yeah. our rules and regulations. Yeah, that's great. And then you're doing stuff like, you know, the, the hook study, like sending things, you're getting the community involved. Like now it's, you're, you're looking to the people for the data. So, you know, it's just another, I don't know, it's another way of reaching out and making it happen. Yeah, yeah. and we'll see how it goes. You know, we, yeah. we're starting with like 300 kits to send out. Nice. And, you know, we could double that. We could, we could completely knock it out of the, the park and go way bigger than that we don't we don't know how many people are going to want yeah, to throw data to, at us but trying yeah. to prepare ourselves so hopefully yeah, it's a yeah, lot we're, um, we're excited yeah. i mean it's yeah. exciting well of all four people that are listening to this the cool thing about the dmf i think is somebody i didn't grow up in massachusetts and i've moved here and i've been working here is like i i do think that the leadership at dmf cares a lot about anglers uh, they don't always it doesn't always come across right but they do care and they're, they're putting investments into understanding this stuff and I, I think moving forward we're hoping to do a lot more with recreational fisheries at the division and both like interacting with stakeholders getting their advice and focusing on things that maybe we're missing that they see out there as important issues and I think I agree with you I think you guys at your organization definitely do care about the anglers I mean you guys are here on a Monday night at nine o'clock at night now you know, coming down on your own time to come here and talk about this, to get information out, tell people about what you do, how to get them involved, you know. And, you know, that just goes to show you the type of people that are, that are working there behind behind the scenes that are fighting for anglers and want to hear us and listen to what we have to say and explain, you know, and try to get on the same path. And, you know, you guys have been doing a great job since I became part of the um, – the fishing culture around here, you know, coming to our meetings, going to the fishing shows, interacting with people, and you always do it. You know, you're very respectful to everybody, you're educational, and I think you take our what people have to say seriously. You know, just Matt just talking about dumbing down the language for idiots like me, you know, things like that. I know we talked about, um, you know, when these macro things were going through, we've had some conversations because I think before it was going to be like 10 per person. And I was about ready to burn the place down. <laughs> that would be hard. That would be hard to do. No, yeah. 10 per Just person. No, 10 person, not burning the place down. Yeah. So, you know, and I think, um, and I think that's also been something that that's been really cool. That I've always really appreciated. So, yeah. you know, well, you guys have been grilling us with questions and especially about the mackerel. So how do you guys get mackerel scales? off of your rods and reels um literally right now it's still, it's still there it's still there all right so you like the rest of us i didn't know i didn't know there was a yeah. pro tip i was missing. I was, I was looking for something in my basement two days ago actually on saturday and i'm like oh, these rods are a goddamn mess and i was just like do i have anything readily available and i just sprayed a little wd-40 on it no no i think uh i just got industrial strength simple green i'm just gonna let it soak for a little soak bit so and that'll probably do it yeah it's okay just keep hitting it and then there's got to be. That's a good one. Someone, someone should, you know. You just got to be proactive. One of the, the four rinsing. people listening I, to the podcast. Before you put it back in the rod, I think you can't yeah. let the sun. I know. I know. Pete, just... Pete Murray hits it with a, like a toothbrush every day. Toothbrush uh, or something like that. A little scrubber. That I got sounds yeah. like Pete. Murray. A, a nylon brush. I could do something <laughs> like that. But I don't know, man. My macro rods. My macro rods. They're just little. I wonder if cheapies. there's a coating of some kind that a macro rod you could put on it. That I'm going to try waxing it actually this year. I'm going to take something. Yeah. Thinking about it from like a. 
after cleaning a lot of boat bottoms, thinking about like what could you put on a rod that would keep <laughs> yeah. the scales from sticking. Dude, it, it's Something just like, like imagine like four people in my position, four people with mackerel just flying by your face. You're taking them off the hooks. You're moving rods around. You're grabbing things, retying shit. And then you look at it at the end of the day. You're like, oh my goodness. I say your boat looks oh pretty goodness. good for all that that going on. <laughs> Dude, some days, man. Whenever I fish with Chris, it's always after like, you know, he's like had like seven trips in a row, you know, like over the course of three days. And then I get on the boat. I'm just like, I'm definitely not sitting down. Well, <laughs> well you know, that's why he brought you. You know why that is? I'm like, Dan, yeah, I get Thursday one. afternoon off. It's Tuesday night, right? I'm like, oh, good. Now nah, I'll, I'll have Dan do the really good say. scrubbing on Thursday. <laughs> <laughs> I'll hit it with the hose. We're going to go a little before. further from Macklin today. Can you please clean up Dan a little? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's funny. All right. Real quick, couple things. I do want to talk about the herring situation because that's something a lot of people don't hear about. And you are the expert in that. What is... What's the herring situation? Good, bad, and different? Where are we well, at? I that? mean, I think river herring um, in Massachusetts, it's kind of different parts of Massachusetts are different. And again, that's like a, a whole thing about the age structure again, where what I think since the closures in 2005, we've seen some better numbers in some runs, which is great. It's really good to see. We've seen some really good numbers in a few places like Herring River and Harwich had a year that was probably over a million fish. The Mystic River for a few years was averaging um, six to eight hundred thousand fish a year. They've dipped back, dipped down now. Um, but it's the same thing with the age structure. Where if you go back in our, where we do have data, if you go back into the seventies and eighties, we had a lot of six, seven, eight, nine-year-old fish. Yeah. And now our run is like eighty percent five-year-old and less, not like ninety percent five-year-old and less. So you basically, if you have what you, you know, so if you look back since the closure, we've had this roller coaster, but we have. You know, it goes up, 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 and then it goes down, 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 and then up, 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 and like, and so last year, the last couple of years, we've been on a three-year downward cycle for most of the state, and last year, we didn't see it up here as much, but uh, really, the north side of Cape Cod, all the way through to the Hudson River, was, you know, just as bad as that 2002 to 2005 year period, um, hmm. where that led to all the closures, um, really, really just runs without any fish, people really upset really freaking out trying to figure out what happened it was a little better up here um but uh we've had some really we've had some also had some really good restoration things that have happened because of all this i i talked about the mystic that's didn't even have passage in medford to the mystic lakes dam uh 2012 dmf worked with dcr to build a fish ladder there and now that started out at 300 400 fish they were counting uh, we've put fish uh, fish ladder at the next dam up in Winchester, and we're going to have a new ladder going into Horn Pond and Woburn. And I think that if we can get good recruitment and get stay away from droughts and other things that are hurting those populations, build up some of that age structure, we're going to be looking at close to a million fish coming into the Mystic every year. The Charles probably has three to 500, 600,000 fish every year. So it's good. And that's why we see part of what we see fish there. The Merrimack's another um, great story, and I have some figures on that. We can talk about where we've, um, well, it's not a great story. It could be a great story. How about that? Okay. All right. Um, I mean, as, as charter guys, have you noticed a difference in the river fishing in, in May and June? Yeah. I mean, uh, this, like the last this, couple of years, this particular year, early June, late May for bigger fish was like really, really good. Yeah. Really good. However, I feel like there wasn't as much herring, or at least I didn't see as much herring flipping like I normally do that time of year. In the lower river? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Basically, from 
you know, Amesbury up, Amesbury East. Yeah, I haven't had the chance to look at the data by species, and that would be kind of um, probably blueback herring mostly. Yeah. And uh, I, my sense, though, in the places where we do have blueback herring and alewife is that coastwide blueback herring was really poor. Because a lot of the runs where we have both species, you usually see a big run in the run, a bump in the run counts in that like second week of May to June for June, first week of June time period. And that's those bluebacks coming in after the alewife. And we did not get those bumps in those runs like the Monument, Herring River, Harwich, the Mystic, even to some extent Parker River. Yeah. Um, we didn't get a big bump this year. I think the blueback herring were really bad coastwide. Alewife seemed to do better north of Cape Cod. Uh, and then Maine had a fantastic year. But, um, this so I mean what happened is around 2010, uh, the Merrimack River, all the agencies that work on the Merrimack River, Matt did this for a while uh, before I was hired. We all have a, co- a collaborative effort um, that we do, and the folks from New Hampshire were trucking fish up into uh, Lake, uh, not Winnesquam, uh, yes, Lake Winnesquam, Winnesquam, um, and so that went from us getting 10, 20,000 fish a year to Lawrence. And getting counted, getting passed over to Lawrence to 300, 400,000 fish a year. Oh, wow. So that's kind of what's happened over the past decade is that's built up. I think it was 2010 or 2012 that started. Um, but it's all because we're trucking fish past all these mainstream stem dams. That's what's bringing the fish back. We did this in the 90s, and the same thing happened. We trucked oh, fish. Wow. It built up to a couple hundred thousand fish. We stopped trucking fish, and it just died. And so just to prove the point, we've done it again. Yeah. Um, so we were gone. We went through relicensing for Lowell and uh, – and hopefully that's going to go through. It needs to be approved by FERC, um, and hopefully get some big fish passage improvements there. This is the dam. The this is a dam, yeah. the little hydroelectric yeah. facility. Um, Lawrence is about to start. Um, you know, there will be times for public input, which would be great to hear from anglers right now. We're doing a lot, basically, right now to try and improve river herring numbers because it's going to be better for straight bass. Oh, fishing. that's my Everything favorite else. bite, man. Yeah. yeah, I think that's my favorite bite. When, in oh, the, I remember in that the, one day when they were all up the, oh, the right up on the grass. There. God, it was yeah. awesome. Oh, yeah. You could, like, literally throw a plug right into the grass, and then just as soon as it would hit the water, it's <laughs> gone. Awesome. Yeah, it's so uh, cool. And, and just the, <laughs> they get so aggressive and watching them chase them. Like, I like I like it when they're feeding on, on herring a lot you know yeah we don't really get wide open mackerel bites obviously like i saw probably about like four or five this year which was probably a lot um um and then you get the pogey stuff which is cool but you know it's i don't know i think snagging and dropping doing that stuff in the pogies is kind of silly to be honest with you i don't think it's that fun and we can't even do that anymore so it's like and we haven't had pogies for two years anyway so you know, um, but that top water herring bite is probably the most fun. Probably the most yeah. fun. It's it's cool, and so yeah. So we're doing that. Um, this year was cool though. Like you were said, it, it was really interesting because there was a cold snap. Typically, we pass almost all of those. Like it could be two hundred thousand, could be four hundred thousand river mm-hmm. herring at Lawrence, that which is that first dam on the Merrimack. They get passed in a six seven day window. It's yeah. crazy. It's all at once. They're all going up river. They're not hanging around. They're just like going. We're going, and they all pass at once. And right at that window this year, there was a cold snap. Like the people at the dam who run the dam and the biologists there could see like the numbers building, building, building. They passed fish for one day. And then it was like cold snap and all the fish dropped out. And in the time that it took to warm back up, the bass arrived. Yeah. And there was... Oh, it was just a massacre. Oh, so no. So, I mean, it was hundreds of 30 to 40-inch striped bass that were right in the tail race of the dam. Oh, wow. Um, blocking the fishway entrance. And you could watch schools of 10,000 river herring turn the corner and come up towards the tail race. And all the goals would get up off of the ledge. And all the striped bass would turn around. 
and it would just be 15 minutes of chaos and then <laughs> the, awesome. at, the, at the end of it there would be nothing but scales and like zero river herring dude that's the worst when we're offshore back in the day tuna fishing you see some gulls and you pull up and all you just see is herring scales everywhere but yet no herring or no tuna anywhere anymore just missed it just missed it but so that's what happened so yeah this year the passage was terrible the number counted because it was like 40,000 but it was the fish were there but there was, it was three weeks of striped bass just camped out there. Yeah, we had a really hearing. early run of big stripers, and yeah. then they real early exit of big stripers, too. I yeah. feel like when they dropped back out, they found the pogey schools that happened to be right at the front of the mouth, and I think all the pogies that we had and leading up out. to that point, they all just shifted way north. Yeah, just like my friends that live in Maine had the best season they ever had last year. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yep. So that I mean that so that happened this year, but the, I mean I think that for anglers who want to support more river herring, um, we have a dam removal that's moving towards happening on the Parker River, the second dam, the Larkin Dam, and um, there's going to be opportunities for public comment for that if you keep track of these things with the town of Newberry. Uh, the town of Newberry owns that dam, and they're moving forward with hopefully removing it. Um, we're going to be rebuilding uh, the first fishway on the Concord River, okay. which is going to be really important um, because we're also hopefully removing the first da uh, dam that has no passage, and that's going to open up like 20-plus miles of river up into oh, wow. the Sudbury and Assabet. So that could, that's a river that could be putting out hundreds of thousands of river herring if we can get passage on it. And then, so, again, that's something where um, there's going to be a MEPA process is what it's called, and I, I can pass you a link to the to when those meetings come up because if anglers or angler groups like if your guys charter captain association plum island, plum island surf casters those are all people who should submit letters to that or show up for a meeting online to say yeah we support this yeah. um because that yeah, that's more fish to be better striper fishing yeah you know everything else i feel like whenever that herring run was good like everything else is good everything else is good around here yeah so yeah it's good so yeah good herring um we're working always working on shad restoration i don't know if you guys do any of the shad fishing in the river or not but dude every year i want to do it every year i get out like once maybe and like yeah, <laughs> yeah. i want to yeah. we had eric you know eric roach yeah oh yeah right? no eric and i are in pretty constant communication yeah we had him on the podcast email. last year and jesus we could have sat here for six hours yeah, talking about it, talking to him about that but he emailed me, emailed me last week to ask what was going on yeah yeah <laughs> yeah so great dude and um yeah i just never got a chance i think i went out one day for like an hour it's all i could have squeezed in it's like uh I always, I'm always a little early. I try to do it a little bit during my April vacation, but now, you know, if I get the weather, the boat's ready to go. I'm going offshore at that point, but whenever I can sneak out a day, you know, I always want to give it a shot. So, but how was that? How was that year? This year? It, that This past year was, I, and I really, I don't get to do it because I'm in the same boat as you. It's, yeah. like, it's my busiest but you, time of the year. Yeah. Do, you I study, talked to, do you study the shad though? Right? Uh, we do. The passage was about where it's been, which is disappointingly low. Uh, yeah. Lawrence doesn't seem like it's too bad for passage. We know that uh, Lowell, that second dam on the main stem Merrimack, has a lot of problems. Hopefully, we have fixed that through the relicensing process. It's going to probably take five to eight years to make all the changes. They're going to pull out that they have a fish elevator there, which, which is the fish would not go. The shack Isn't that fairly new, the fish ladder? Uh, the elevator. The elevator, It's mean? not that new, no. Okay. It's a couple decades. It's more than a couple decades. All right. Um, nothing else but then. they're going to put in a real, a big fishway there. So they're going to get rid of that, and there'll be. we think that that's going to work a lot better. It's going to be a copy of one that they have on the other side of the river that we've seen does pass the shed. So um, hopefully that's going to be really good. Uh, 
and we've made it's it's scary it's like a 50-year license so you hope what you get them to build works yeah um because yeah. <laughs> yeah, kind of, you don't get another you get bite one, in you get right. one shot you get one shot yeah. That's it. yeah um so yeah so one depends. lifetime shot <laughs> yeah but I, I think chad and you know then there's some cool stout to here there's some cool coastal rivers in massachusetts that have small populations that you can go fish and you know, you can't harvest in those rivers. You can, you, if you want to keep a fish in the Merrimack or the Connecticut, you can. Right, the only but, two. Yeah, yeah. but, but I, I mean, if you guys, if you caught them, they're, you can get a small spinning rig, and they're a great time. They're a lot of fun. Oh, the fishing. shad? Yeah. Oh, they're a riot. Yeah, I they're, love they're them. So I love fun. them. I wish yeah. I could go fish from for them a lot more. Don't Absolutely. get me wrong. Yeah, yeah no, so I, I think that's like a, a, it's a cool thing to do. But yeah, I like, it, it's good. Um, yeah, hopefully it'll be a good river herring year and a good shad year and a good striper year. With you know, with all those big fish following them. Yeah, man, I'm ready to go. Yeah, I'm ready to go. Well, yeah. A couple, few more weeks, we'll be haddock fishing. Yeah, yeah. we're almost there. We're almost Getting there. Crazy. Getting itchy. All right, just got to get the snow off the boat, and we're, we'll be good to go. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so guys, Matt, Ben, thank you guys so much for coming out tonight. Really appreciate it. We learned a lot. We just got you guys for two hours, going into a lot of detail. Really happy to hear about the things that you guys are doing for us and and for the fisheries. Um, very interesting stuff. So you guys that are listening, if you want to check out Mass.gov Ma- so Mass- slash Marine Fisheries will get you to our homepage. You can search for anything there. I mean, the, the new Striper um, Citizen Science uh, project will be up. It is up on the website now. You can um you can look there and see it it's uh it's gonna we'll have some posts here coming out on social media you probably even get an email if we have your email and file from having a saltwater permit um so it'll we'll, we'll put it out there and people will see it uh, when, when you post it make sure you share it with me i'll put it on the miles of the merrimack page too and uh that. give us the links and we'll tag it on the i see how the video comes out if we end up putting it on youtube but actually we'll put it on we'll throw pictures and stuff out yeah. so that way we can at least link your stuff through there if, if it ever looks like an earthquake it's because i've kicked this table like 18 times <laughs> i don't know what's going on dude i guess we gotta buy a goddamn camera a real camera yeah. i'm too well, tall yeah. for this table and i'll throw out there you know any questions feel free to reach out to us you know we're always, we're always you know we're, we answer the phone we we will get back to you if we don't but uh you know phone email uh it's all there yeah. on the website and so striper at mass.gov it's going to be the email for this project striper oh, awesome. at mass.gov for this particular project yeah, but anything project. recreational too you know yep. if any anything you know feel free to reach out we're we're always there for yeah, that's what we're here for and then they can see you today at Whistler if they're driving down listen to this on on the sunday that's right yeah if you listen today what well, i won't be there actually a couple other folks from our new bedford office will be there on sunday i, I will have been there yesterday uh but uh yeah we'll be at the plum island surf casters uh show in new report next weekend uh, and then upcoming shows for the Mouths of the Merrimack. Uh, April 29th. Yep. And, uh, yeah, I think uh, I'm giving a talk at the Northeast Charter Boat Captains Association in April, mid-April. So. Oh, I'll see you there then, too. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. and then, um, yeah, we get the Plum Island show next week, and Dan and I will have a table for both Mouths of the Merrimack and Mandolin Charters, and I'm actually giving a presentation that day, too, at 9 o'clock, talking about seasonal striper fishing. So if you guys are around the area, come check that out. Be happy to meet you and hopefully uh, teach you something.